No Side. Short Stories and Poems by Michael Swaim. Score by Davy Francis. Distributed by Small Beans. Found online at patreon.com slash smallbeans. This audiobook is dedicated to Noah Byrne, who taught me that the only way to run with a mug of hot coffee without spilling it is not to look, and that everyone has a shit room. If you're listening to this, you've done it, penetrated to the deepest parts of my emotional sanctum, whether you intended to or not. Performers tend to do that to you. We're like placemat mazes crying out to be easily solved. And yet, only a slim few of those I've been lucky enough to call my fans have cared to take an interest in the disquieting castles that inevitably result when I'm left unattended in a sandbox. But stories and poems, like those that follow, are what initially found me and made me into a writer. The short fiction of genre authors is my favorite flavor of brain candy, and it's with immense gratitude that I humbly attempt to contribute to that story flow. You're going to learn about some of the things I care most about and some of the things I fear most as well. We'll talk about loss, resilience, cruelty, passion, art, death and its antecedents, how to live among trees, and how to take vengeance on the universe. It's a darker journey than most offered by this network, but thankfully, we have the wonderful music of Davy Francis to illuminate the way ahead. Let's get started. The show must go on. In the darkness of the amphitheater, the every thought was a buzz. They had expected the separation to be traumatic, of course, but they had not expected this. They watched as Unit Cygnus X-1 threw himself against the steel walls of his ship, Peering out from his eyes, feeling from within his body, they observed with concern as he moaned and screeched himself hoarse, flopped around on the floor, scrambled back and forth across the cramped chamber as if desperately searching. After an hour of complete hysteria, he simply collapsed and began clawing at himself, leaving bright, raw scratches across his bare face, chest, legs. When there was too much flesh jammed beneath his fingernails to continue, he shivered, clenched, and began to sob. Needless to say, they were upset. Unit Cygnus X-1 had been their most capable component. He had been trained even from before birth for the moment of his inevitable separation from the every thought. Their soothing words had pulsed and radiated through the amniotic fluid in which he had grown, permeating his mind and filling every atom of his being with the foreknowledge of this inexorable event. It had been his destiny, and they had whispered it into his ears when those were nothing more than bundles of cells, scarcely functional. How well they remembered it. And yet here he was, pale, naked, crumpled in the corner of the perfect ship they had built for him. The splintered thoughts battling for primacy in his mind were not at all what they had expected. 
the every thought were of one mind, because they could be no other way, and that mind had predicted a trepidation, a hesitancy, perhaps, but ultimately, and finally, a resolute adherence to one's duty, loyalty to man, to earth, to the every thought. Instead, they felt in him only a dull, wriggling fear, a ripple of worry spread across the mass of their minds like the surface of a pond. Was he capable? Would he destroy himself before the proper time? Would the show go on? And it was a show, of course, because that was all that was left to them. Being one, knowing all, there was scarcely anything in the wide universe to hold them in thrall, or provide the mystery and curiosity a race-like man required. Only this last discovery, this last uncharted domain, to which they had sent their brightest part. Doubt crackled through the core of the every thought. Would he provide the entertainment they had created him for? Would the mysteries of the black hole finally lay open to them? They listened intently. Unit Cygnus X-1 hurt everywhere. The metal floor was like ice and his scratches stung. His eyes throbbed in time with his heart, drying tears leaving salt on the lids and blurring his vision. His throat felt like a desert, parched and rutted with the strain of shouting at no one. He was all alone. He had been alone for weeks now, in some sense. The ship had left Earth and arced away on a mile-long scimitar of plasma, which had carried him, its sole passenger, as far from Earth as any piece of the everythought had ever been. He had certainly been alone then, physically, but of course, he had not even known what it meant to be alone then. For then, his head had been filled with the singular vision and accord of the everythought. He had not been he but rather part of a tranquil and harmonious whole, a tiny piece of a single mind. He had let his every thought represent one firing neuron in man's greater brain. He had drifted on the glassy surface of a warm ocean, and his brothers and sisters floated with him, never touching one another, but all moving together in a perfect, unbroken cant of consciousness. The swells would come and go, the ocean, gently shifting in patterns too large for any individual to see, but which he had faithfully believed, interwove to reveal the right and true path. Immense emotional diagrams that illuminated the way of a mankind united, transcendent over the petty rivalry of individual egos. A mankind at last made one. It had been warm and dark. Now it was cold and bright. He lay still in the ship's cabin and felt every new sensation like an unwelcome slime covering his body. His nose was stuffed. His right elbow was sore. Everything was his, his, his. Whereas before he had been part of something large and strong, he now felt his weakness acutely, as if he were going to be crushed by a boot at any moment. He tried rolling onto his stomach. The flesh of his belly and groin contracted when it made contact with the freezing cabin floor. 
Comfort had not been something he cared about before the separation. Now, he ached for it. This need made him very weak, he thought. He felt like an ancient warrior, pitted against the black of the infinite universe, armed only with a sharpened stick. No, not even that. He stood alone in a coliseum of wheeling stars, awaiting the first attack of an unseen assailant. And he stood naked. Unit Cygnus X-1 pushed himself off of the ground with his arms and tentatively took to his feet. Some of the panic he had felt earlier was dissipating. The knot in his stomach had ceased its upward thrusting and instead settled somewhere deeper inside him. He had never even thought of life as a battle before, he mused. Then again, he had been a part of something strong before, and the truly strong rarely question their own might. He decided to sit down. There was a chair, after all. <laughs> it was about the only thing that had been provided for him, and he had asked for nothing more. The chair grew out of the metal floor like a giant crystal, square and sharp at every point. A little needle in one of the arms gave him his food, and a hole in the seat could be opened to accept his waist. There was nothing else in the room. No windows, no doors, only a dull metal curve. He didn't even know how large a ship it was, or where he was, or when he would arrive at his destination. He only knew that the end of the journey meant instant death, and that the prospect of his ceasing to exist frightened him now in a way that he couldn't have fathomed mere moments ago. He sat in the chair, freezing cold against skin again, and carefully placed an arm onto each armrest. Had he really spent the entirety of this long trip in this position? It had felt so comfortable, so right, to sit in silence and stillness, conversing with his fellow man instantaneously and allowing machines to do their work. He couldn't imagine that now, sitting still and motionless for days. In fact, he could hardly stay in the cabin at all, he glared at the image of himself that the walls reflected back a tan smear across their gray surface. He blinked, and the room seemed to get smaller around him with each blink. He wasn't sure where all of the light was coming from, but it was blinding. Then he remembered with a start that he was not, in fact, alone. No, not alone at all. How could he have forgotten? He was still part of the every thought, still connected, but it was one way now, a voyeuristic arrangement rather than any sort of true unity. In truth, he was so much more than merely naked. He was stripped bare, flensed, pinned open on an autopsy table, organs squirming under their inquisitive pokes. When he had been a part of it, a member among billions, equally sharing in the knowledge and experience of man, it had been heaven. But now, Separate and yet still exposed, he felt cheated. Blood rose in his face. He shifted in his seat and felt the metal chair back rub against the three dime-sized nubs running up his spine, where cortical shunts had been inserted. He remembered the gene therapy, behavioral training, the drug therapies, all meant to prepare him for the experience of serving as a one-way radio in flesh a closed-circuit television camera unto himself. A hundred billion souls were crammed within his skull, observing every thought and physical sensation he had, feeling them, 
It must have been crowded in there, he thought, and smiled for the first time in his life. Standing room only. Unit Cygnus X-1 imagined the Earth then, slowly revolving within his head, which was a dark cavern. The planet rotated past the two bright viewing screens that were his eyes, and then back into darkness, the rear of his skull, where mankind peered instead at the dim thoughts that danced across the inside curve of his skull like flickering shadows cast by a fire. Members of the Every Thought jostled this way and that on the tiny globe, making sure they soaked up every last detail of his heady experience. Those who could see the ship relayed the images to the others. Those who could not see kept their arms outstretched and eyes closed, waiting to intercept his thoughts and relay them to the group. Everyone listened. They were watching, even now, he thought observing even the images of them that his imagination was conjuring up. Unit Cygnus X-1 pictured two mirrors inside the cavern, set up facing one another so that the image of the Earth was reflected down into infinity on either side, becoming dimmer and cloudier as it moved back into the unreality of a reflection of a reflection of a reflection of a reflection of a mirror that didn't exist. The ship rocked violently. Unit Cygnus X-1 went sprawling headfirst out of the chair and crashed against the floor, knocked the wind out of him. While he struggled to catch his breath, the ship shook again, as if it had run off an invisible road and was now barreling down a dirt embankment. It didn't let up, but intensified as he rubbed his sore neck and clambered back to the chair in the middle of the room. The constant sounds of vibrating equipment and intermittent squeals of stressed metal reverberated through the cabin as the ship tried in vain to break itself apart. Unit Cygnus X-1 knew what it meant. His legs wobbled beneath him as he settled back into his seat, far more than he could blame on the turbulence. His heart was pounding, and his breath came short and shallow, although he couldn't tell if that was from the fall or this new physical sensation. He thought, perhaps, that he was dying. Could one die from fear? He had never felt an emotion so extreme and discordant. His palms slipped on the armrests as he tried to grip them, and a strange, buzzing lightheadedness invaded him. How terrible, he thought, how terrible for them if the player were simply to expire before the show began. If their radio transmitter died moments before the curtain were to open and they sent nothing but a lifeless corpse through the black hole. Because that was what it was, he thought, gripping the armrests compulsively again and again. He was nearly there, at the black hole. He was riding in a ship with no controls and only one course, without hope of deviation. They had postponed the separation for as long as possible, and now he was almost there. He would get sucked in, into his death, and man would watch from inside his brain, watch and applaud and parse the neuronal data for millennia to come, and at last be secure in a complete knowledge of the universe's mysteries. He thought he must die if it kept on like this. The darkness that lay ahead of him and the now alien-seeming beings that filled his mind worked like a vice, pushing him from the inside and outside and thinning him until he thought he must have the life crushed out of him soon. But he didn't. He didn't die. He just breathed harder and faster and clutched at the seat 
and felt the hundred billion inside him like a nest of spiders scrabbling around and pushing at the back of his eyes. Ahead of him, although he could not see it, the black hole waited to rip him into a trillion single atoms and stretch them into spaghetti and absorb them forever. Unit Cygnus X1 made a noise. It was a dumb, wailing thing that rose and mingled with the intensifying roar of the ship. He moaned again and again, and finally stood when the palms of his hands were raw from rubbing the warm metal of the seat. His elbows still ached and his chest still stung. His throat and lungs were fire, and the faster he breathed, the more his head began to tingle. The ship started to lurch and he stumbled around the cabin, wrapping his arms around himself, steadying himself against a wall when he needed to. He could almost feel the lewd anticipation of the crowd inside him. They were leaned forward in their seats like Romans awaiting the lions. The lights in the cabin seemed brighter than ever. It would be very soon. He would die, he thought. He would die, he would die, he would die. He would die forever, stuck between two mirrors. He would watch himself die a thousand times. No, he wouldn't. He would die once and cease. The tan smear on the walls followed his every movement, his every thought. It would scream and die as well, the whole ship. Him alone, as a solitary object, as an individual attached to no one and nothing. Unit Cygnus X-1 collapsed against the steel wall. He was flushed and still moaning, his arms wrapped tight around himself, his mind spinning so quickly that he thought the people riding the tiny earth must be thrown against the inside of his skull and liquefied. The lights in the cabin seemed to intensify further, but they were no longer blinding because they had begun to flash red in a futile warning. He almost laughed. And then, suddenly, he did laugh. He chuckled, then giggled, and then without knowing why, he was laughing loudly, hysterically. Tears started to stream out of his eyes. He could barely catch his breath he was laughing so hard. Unit Cygnus X-1 rolled around on the floor and pounded the ground with his fist and grinned uncontrollably, so wide his jaw ached. He let out a long breath and lay flat on his back, staring up at the naked, spread eagle, now tan, now red smear on the ceiling, and feeling the ship vibrate beneath him. He felt warm again. He had never been so much in his own body as right now when he was about to be ripped out of it. Each sting, ache was his. Each breath he took kept him alive a few seconds longer. The every thought of man was in him, but they were separate, not him. Enemies. The black hole was an enemy. He was alone in the pit of a cosmic coliseum, and he would have to fight soon, and he knew that he would lose. But it would be his loss, and his death alone. He would put on a grand show, he thought, and he would not be back for a curtain call, no matter how much they applauded. The ship rocked a final time, then broke apart and was gone. For the barest of seconds, Unit Cygnus X-1 found himself floating in endless space, grinning at a gallery of gently canting stars all around him. And then the lion pounced. There was pain, and he screamed, but the pain flared for only a second before he was stretched out and spun into the black hole like a spider web on the breeze.
this last act proved truly special. The every thought crowded themselves together to witness the death of their brother. As he approached the black hole, thoughts and feelings lost to mankind for eons rippled through his mind. The every thought followed along in lockstep, inhaling those sensations like a heady fog. They rode each violent crest of fear and trough of despair. They made love as one atop the mountain of experience his sacrifice was bringing them. It was the height of ecstatic joy. It was erotic in its intimacy, daring and powerful in its simple force. They all agreed it was the show of the century. They huddled even closer together as Unit Cygnus X-1 collapsed. It was almost time now, they thought. They felt his fear, his sudden laughter, inexplicable, felt it as their own. It was a memory they would revisit over the coming years they knew. They would live the death of Unit Cygnus X-1 a thousand times, marvel at it as their greatest undertaking, and masturbate to the gaudy brutality of it all. Unit Cygnus X-1 was the right man for the job, they smirked. We should not have doubted. They foamed at the mouth and danced and groped desperately at one another in the fear and joy and lust. And then it came. And when it came, Unit Cygnus X-1 screamed, and they screamed with him, all of them, because they were as one, and they thought as one that the end would come soon, that the lights would dim, and they would applaud politely, and shuffle their feet, and put on their coats, and wander back out to the street and the home, and finally to the warm and canting sea, to consider the fear of death and the mankind of it all. But it did not end. Instead, they watched and felt as the first particles of Unit Cygnus X-1 were stripped from him and flung towards the unknown heart of the black hole. They watched and felt as more and more of him separated, lined up single file, atom by atom, and slid down towards the unbelievable void. They screamed in his fear, writhed in his pain. Like a man being electrocuted, they clung convulsively to the source of their pain. They were fused to Unit Cygnus X-1's tortured body, lashed to his senses with no hope of letting go until his death. And that death seemed less and less imminent. You see, where Unit Cygnus X-1 should have fallen into the dark at speeds beyond reckoning, instead, he slowed to a stop, floating, mouth tight in an obscene grin, stars reflecting in his eyes. The members of the every thought screamed in the intolerable pain of depressurization, feeling their bodies explode from inside and be ripped away into the intense gravity well all at once. At first, they simply reeled with the pain, unable to even comprehend what had happened. Several thousand years later, it dawned on them through the wall of pain, dawned on them as one, and they understood instantly that it meant the end of everything. As Unit Cygnus X-1 shot faster and faster toward his death, as they fell after him, chained to him in their writhing pain, the flow of time dilated, slowed, began to crawl. For him, it was over. For him, the death had come in the blink of an eye. But for them, sitting stationary on Earth, and yet living his experiences, 
The incredible speed of his plummeting body meant that the blink of an eye could take millennia. The faster he went, the slower they would perceive, and the longer their screams would continue to be torn from their hundred billion throats. The every thought felt as one, the crushing and undeniable horror of relativity. In the darkened amphitheater of man, Unit Cygnus X-1 was not dead. He was dying. It was a dying that stretched out before the every thought like a ribbon a million miles long, a climax that would last for eons, a pain that would not end. It was dread and tragedy. It was omen and justice, and it showed. It showed in his eyes, eyes that they would have their whole lives to admire. And they all agreed, as they always did. It was the greatest death scene ever performed on the cosmic stage. And their chorus of endless screams, the ovations of the every thought, would rise from earth in praise of that performance like the thick smoke of a funeral pyre forever and ever. And still, Unit Cygnus X-1 floated face fixed in a grin. And it goes like this, a fable. The next time you're at the beach, stand at the very edge of the water, where the waves bite at your ankles and dig little holes in the sand beneath each of your toes, and gaze out across the great gray plain of the ocean. Stare at the horizon, squint, strain your eyes as hard as you can, but still, you won't see it. You may think you have seen it, but you'll soon realize with disappointment that what you have seen is simply a boat in the distance or a drift of seaweed or the workings of an overeager mind. This thing that you will not see is an island tucked just behind the curve of the world far off of any coastline. The island is surrounded on all sides by a deep, startlingly blue skein of water and its cold sands and yellow palms make it look from the sky, though an airplane has never flown overhead, like a brass button in a great felt navy coat. The island is not over large, but it is large enough to show up on a map of the region, though it has never been on any map. The sands slope steeply out of the water at the edges and form a series of broad beaches, some white, some gold, that undulate softly against the sea like the lines of a natural calligraphy. Further back, small scrubby stands of stubborn beach grass and occasional shoots of yellowed bamboo stud the beach. Here and there, bits of driftwood have been set or washed into cryptic ideograms. A few steps further, and you are confronted with the first emissaries of the jungle, the oldest and tallest palm trees, their rough trunks having grown outwards from the heart of the island, jab at low angles towards the water and leave their bushy animal heads floating a few feet above the hot sand. Tracing their trunks back toward the center of the island, 
one finds a wall of palms, ferns, mosses, and elephant ears, all jostling for sunlight. If you could see the sunlight on the island, you wouldn't blame them. The sunlight on the island is clear and pristine, raining down from an eternally cloudless cornflower sky. It pours in buckets, drenching the island with milk at dawn, butterscotch at midday, and thick amber caramel in the late afternoons. It scuttles like a sea urchin overhead, radiating spines of hazy fire to bathe the sands below. It tears at the edges of itself like a hole cut with dull scissors in the sheet of the sky, a hole through which falls yard after yard of gossamer light, fabric pulled through glorious fabric from a golden bolt hidden just behind the heavens. There are people on the island. Not too many, by any count, for there is still plenty of room on the island to explore and cultivate, but enough to form tribes, enough so that no one is ever lonely for long. From the high peak of the towering mountain in the center of the island, one can spot bear patches all across the jungle where the people have scratched out clearings for their towns, roads, and city halls. At night, the flickering light of a fire radiates from each town as if it were a miniature volcano spewing still-burning ash upward on dark, sweet-smelling billows of smoke. This is the smell of the tribe cooking dinner, a great communal feast of swordfish or marlin or, very occasionally, wild pig. Everyone on the island is a fisherman. Though there are many different tribes and many types of people on the island, some short, some tall, some fat, others slender, some with skin like cocoa, some like copper, some with round eyes and some with almond eyes, and though the different tribes differ in many customs, the clothes they wear, the gods they worship, the way they treat their elderly and children, whom they let marry whom and why and for how long, one of the two things that everyone on the island has in common is that they fish. Young and old, there is simply no way to survive on the island without fishing because there's just not enough food on the island to support all of the hungry people there. The occasional rabbit or warthog captured in the jungle is far from sufficient. And so it is that every morning there are thousands of ships of all types crowding the shoreline. And all through the day, there are fishers with their nets or hooks or wooden traps bobbing on the ocean, catching fish after fish to haul in for supper. Out on the ocean, waiting for their fish, the people of the island talk to one another. A bulky woman with a shock of brown hair sailing in a pale canoe drifts towards the dark rowboat of a man all covered in black tattoos, and she shouts to him, asking how his family and his tribe fare, and who is chief now, and has he heard anything about the panther that was prowling around last week? In this way, all the thousands of people living on the island get to know one another, and the tribes, though separate, are knowledgeable of one another, and at least in this way, become united. The other thing that unites everyone on the island is the festival. On a particular day, when the sun rides just so in the sky, all the people on the island know that the time has come for the great festival. And without a word said to the other tribes, each assembles on the biggest beach just as dusk comes on. Bathed in the purple light of a failing day, they draw all of their boats to the water's edge until every family on the island stands beside their boat waiting for the first star of the night to signal the beginning of the competition. The line of boats spans the entire length of the island's longest beach, like bunched beads on a necklace. The gentle water laps at thousands of holes, curved, squared, flat-bottomed, 
even log-hewn rafts and one-man kayaks carved from a single tree trunk. Beside each boat is a man or woman or family, all with necks craned back, all straining to be the one to catch sight of the night's first blooming star. Eventually, the star appears, flares into life, twinkling above their heads, emblazoned like a silver stud on the deep leather night. As one, they shout, they hoot and whoop, and the clamor shakes the island, rocketing outward in all directions, even to the high peak of the towering mountain. The noise rumbles birds from their trees, sending them clumsily into the air to wheel and squawk for a few moments before alighting on a branch once more, as if realizing that the terrible sound must only be the human creature's festival come once again. As the birds draw their wings around their heads to sleep, down below on the beach, the people of the island scramble to heave their boats out onto the water. Digging their heels into the sand, they lean backwards, pulling the bulk of their ships out onto the glassy waves and wetting the bottoms of their pants, skirts, robes. Some of the young ones lift their boat together, straight up, and run it into the water. Some of the old ones stumble or slip, falling into shallow foam and letting out surprised yelps. Those next to them help them get their ships afloat after a chuckle or two. Within minutes, the thousand ships are drifting away from the island an unbroken line of boats leaving the land like a layer of shed skin. A few yards out into the water, and the line starts to break up. The people speak quietly to one another, wishing one another luck and bidding family members goodbye. They speak in hushed voices, voices smothered by the descending night and nervous joy of the festival. They drift away from each other, spreading out onto the sea like balls on a pool table, each toward his own favored spot, each resolved to face the morning sun as the champion of the island. The island is now deserted, save for the few sick and elderly who can no longer bear to feel the rocking of the sea. These few lay awake, salivating. They remember when they too competed. Though there can be only one winner each year, every person on the island knows that they have as much chance of winning as anyone else for this is a lesson taught universally to the young people of the island. Everyone competes, and everyone may win, if only they try hard enough and are touched by a little luck. When the boats finally settle in, some dropping anchor, some simply drifting, trusting the gentle winds and sweep around the island, the people begin to prepare their traps. Some are superstitious, caressing carved rocks or found pieces of coral that have been worn smooth by human touch, or else donning pendants made of feathers and a bit of leather string. Nearly all have some sort of ritual to help ensure a good catch, whether it be as simple as double and triple checking the joints and ropes on the trap, or as complex as saying a prayer over the trap, or cutting their hands with a flint knife and smearing blood onto the ancient wood. There is technique in the baiting as well, of course. Most will bait their traps with some sort of food, bits of salted pork saved for months, sweet coconut shreds, or a mush made of roots dug from the jungle soil. Some add personal trinkets, shiny things, or things they hope the susurrations might want to trade their shells for. Everyone adds a song. It is common knowledge on the island that the susurrations love music and songs, and that no fisherman has ever caught a susurration without enticing it first with a song. The song they sing into the traps is the fishing song, which all of the island's children are sung each night as they go to sleep from the time they are born. Because of this, all the people of the island know the song 
and once they have completed all other preparations, attach the heavy ropes, cut them to the proper lengths, they wait until the stars have all come out and the night is dark, there is no moon on the night of the festival, and they sing. The stillness of the air lets the sound travel, and though the people cannot see one another across the dark waters, they can hear the faint, trembling notes of the fishing song coming from all around them as one by one each fisher starts to sing. Some sing before others and some after, so that the air thrums thick with the light melody, and the sounds of the song linger long after it is over, like ghosts walking the waves or echoes bouncing off the big cave of the sky. The song is sad and plaintive, and it goes like this. Mother ocean, father son, brothers, sisters all, raise voices to the lonely night, sing the fishing call. Mother ocean, father son, mend my nets, make them tight. Mother palm and father sand, the coconut I ate, is lonely in my empty throat, nothing on my plate, nothing in my tired hands, nothing yet in my boat. After the last voices fade, the people of the island wait in the vast black silence, listening to the lapping of the water and the noises of the song which isn't there anymore. When that too fades, they each drop their traps into the water, careful to make a small splash, susurrations are timid and easily annoyed, and arm over arm they let out the thick ropes, lowering the song and other bait to the depth they have chosen as ideal. What this depth is is a topic of much debate, and each fisher must make that decision on their own. Once the traps are floating below them, the people of the island wait for the susurrations, their boats gently rocking as the water heaves with the deep breaths of the slumbering earth. Susurrations are very unique creatures, and you are likely not to have heard of them, let alone seen one. They only live deep in the ocean, and only in the vicinity of the island I'm telling you about. Although Japanese fishermen claim to have caught a susurration which later escaped, this has never been proven and the photos are likely doctored. Larger than regular crabs, most adult susurrations are the size of a big dinner plate and about as thick as a pillow. One reason susurrations are not well known is that, unlike other crustaceans, they are not able to easily leave the ocean. Susurrations prefer the depths of the sea, where they can tunnel through the water like silk or simply float upside down in rapt contemplation. When taken on land, a susurration becomes stupid and clumsy. Its shell, which while underwater is an ever-changing, shimmering play of light and color, becomes a dull, ordinary red when exposed to the air. Susurrations are intelligent and curious creatures, but adhere to a very strong moral code. If trapped in an underhanded fashion, they will soon use their strong claws and devious intellect to find a way free. But if trapped properly, in a trap baited with song or other things which the susurrations prize, they will calmly, though some say solemnly, take their place in the trap and allow themselves to be captured and their shells, which are the object of most who attempt to capture them, to be taken. It is this fact that allows all the people of the island to capture the susurrations, as they have known for centuries the proper bait to use and the ways to make a trap comfortable and inviting to a susurration. Usually, it is not long before a fisher who has lowered a trap feels a tug on the line, or hears the ringing of a bell to tell them that a susurration has chosen their trap as its final home. 
Then they happily pull the trap up, hearts beating in anticipation, hoping that their susurration will be the biggest, most beautiful one captured that year. One look at the shimmering, phosphorescent shell of their catch, and they are sure it is true. All the way back to the beach, they grin secretively, convinced more than ever before that they can win the festival competition this year. Before the canopy of stars has drawn a quarter of the way across the sky, all the thousands of boats that left the island are back on the beach, hastily drawn in or tipped up against palm trees, scattered across the sand like driftwood. The tracks of thousands of people and thousands of dragged traps form a path from the beach to a clearing only a few hundred yards away, where big bonfires are already burning, and the next part of the festival is ready to begin. Dozens of long wooden tables have been set up, their tops slicked down with a varnish made from tree sap. It captures the light of the burning fires and seems to glow from within. Each villager has caught a susurration. Each and every man, woman, and child has brought their very own entry to the competition. As the islanders dump their traps out onto tables, the susurration's shells are already beginning to fade to an ordinary red. They stumble around dumbly for a few seconds, bumping into one another as if drunk, before finally rolling over onto their backs. As one, the islanders begin carving, separating the delicate shells from the still-living susurrations. Like fishing, this requires its own technique, and each tribe has a different manner of cutting and skimming, a different preference for type of knife, point of first incision, and direction of cut. The creatures twitch instinctively when cut open, flinching away from the pain, but most of their organs are removed simply enough by reaching a hand in, squeezing the heart, and pulling. All of a susurration's organs are attached to the heart, so this is a very efficient way of deshelling them. The islanders have learned to feel for the small, hard heart and do so with intense focus. They work intently, never speaking other than to grunt in effort or concentration. The work is not silent, however, as the susurrations begin all at once to strike up a cheerful chorus of their death song in trade for the fishing song that was given them. The song is always the same, and it goes like this. Fisher, you who captives keep, brother, sister, hear. The song you sang stuck in our heart, the sky so near, looks wide and deep as any fisher's art. Sink upwards, upwards fall, rise up to the depths. The sea is black, the current breathes, the ocean secrets to one and all, but your soul deceives. By the time the susurrations have finished singing, most have been stripped of their shells, which are now a deep, if inert, red. Their silence is taken by most to mean that they have died, although it is impossible to tell whether what remains of the susurration is alive or not. What remains are the crab's innards, little more than a pile of gleaming white pulp and various pumping organs attached to two eye stalks at the top. The thick pudding usually has a few items lodged in it, things perhaps that the creature ate or discovered on the ocean floor, Things dropped off the sides of cruise ships or washed out to sea after being left on a beach towel. A digital watch, a tuft of fur, the feel of a handshake. But all in all, the mess is rather unsightly, and the innards, along with anything stuck in them, melt into a pungent gray slime when left unattended. Some tried to cook and eat the meat once, but it was tough, difficult to prepare, and tended to cause indigestion. A few helpful islanders collect the scrap for everyone and make a large pile of it on the beach, 
where the next day's high tide will carry it away. At this point, I'd like to say something about cultural heritage. Although the capturing and deshelling of the susurrations may seem cruel or barbaric to some more tender-hearted readers, I wish to remind you that you did not grow up on this island, nor in this culture, and that it is rather rude to judge those with whom you are altogether unfamiliar. Let me assure you, these islanders are little different from yourself, and should you have grown up in their society with their beliefs, you would have a very different view toward the susurrations and the festival, I'm sure. In fact, some of your cultural habits, I would point out, may seem rather bizarre or uncivilized to these people. And I think that in general, the world would be a much better place if we could refrain from judging one another by our own society's standards, and instead learn to put ourselves in the shoes of others and to think about what similarities there may be between us, rather than the differences. In any case, once the remains of the susurrations have been piled on the beach, the islanders clean and polish the shells they've collected, careful not to chip the delicate surface, until each one shines like a burnished red shield under the uneven light of the bonfires. By the time they are finished, the darkest of the night has passed. Most are weary from the hours spent waiting for their traps, shelling the crabs, and scraping and polishing the shells. Their joints and bones ache, their eyelids droop. Nevertheless, all, even the youngest children competing, shake off sleep and fill their lungs with cold, bracing air. They will need the vigor and enervation of the night. They will need to strum their heartstrings tighter and louder to let the burning each feels in their chest grow, carry them forward with supreme passion to their final and most important task, painting and carving the delicate shell of the susurration. For the festival is, above all, an art competition. It is a battle to arrest, to awe, to stun and crush and seduce with the beauty of one's shell. Each islander has until sunup to reform and refashion the ceramic plate into anything they choose, to wrench their souls from their bodies and etch them whole upon the red canvas of the shell. Each islander knows, each has been taught and believes that whosoever harbors the passion of the artist in their heart and the vision and clarity to commune with their own spirit, whosoever desires the most, will ultimately be voted the festival's winner. But the people are not foolish, not like the festivals of decades past, when competitors spent hours crawling the jungle floor, snouts in the dirt, scraping hands and knees in search of roots and berries to mix into dyes, spying out well-formed rocks to use for carving the shells, or scrabbling up trees to scavenge feathers and bits of eggshell from a bird's nest for decoration, or whole eggs to make into glue. Some fools, in those less civilized days, even went so far as to scale the high peak of the towering mountain to try and get a view of the jungle like a smooth dark stone and the water stretching off in its infinite wrinkles and the sky filled with so many stars it was a wonder it didn't come crashing down. These terribly primitive people used to try and use those things to stir their spirit, inform their artistic work, but nearly all today agree that climbing the mountain or crawling through the jungle isn't worth the bumped shins, bleeding palms, and aching bones. The islanders competing tonight have no need of things like dyes or carving tools or glue or water or stars to make their art. They don't need anything to stir their spirits either. 
Are their hearts not already beating fast? Are their chests not stinging? Their spirits not spinning and roiling? Their cheeks not hot and flushed with the throbbing need to prove that they are the best, the most deserving of being recorded for all time as a champion of the island? No, the islanders are not fools. They know that the festival is a competition, and like all competitions, it is not merely the greatest artistic endeavor that takes the prize. They know that one must understand the rules in order to win. One must be able to move sideways and climb ladders backwards, to manage the system like one manages the jungle, subtly and with tact. So the people work on, moving the shells this way and that, rolling them in their hands, pondering what artistic thing may lie inside or on the surface of the chitinous shell. They run their hands along the outside, imagining that somewhere within, the key to their victory is locked away, waiting to be released. Something to make everyone stop and take notice, to take breath away, to be beloved and praised by everyone. Each islander holds their shell as if they've already won, as if the shells they hold are gold medals. The fires dance in their eyes. Hours pass. The sun has almost begun to roll back into the sky, and faint, trembling light peeks out from the world's edge, bringing with it the smell of morning and cold dew on the skin. The great bonfires are smoldering now, bathing the people in a deep cherry glow. Still intent, still silently moving their shells in their hands, the islanders wait for dawn, the signal for the end of the festival and for the time when they will all come together and choose a winner. They, all of them, have left their shells unmarked. Each is as simple, plain, and mutely red as it was when they split from the susurrations' quivering insides. This may seem strange to you, who knows so little about art, but when you hear how smart, how clever and reasonable the people of the island are, you will not think it strange. If you were to ask one of the island people why they didn't paint or carve their shell, this is what they would tell you. When the time comes, each competitor will cast their vote for the winner of the competition. Is it not to be expected that each person will vote for their own entry? If I spend hours turning my shell into a unique and splendid work of art, it will be all the easier to identify, and no one will dare vote for it. I will lose the competition, having wasted an entire night's effort. On the other hand, if I can make my shell look exactly like another one, there is a chance that a competitor will vote for my shell, thinking it is theirs. Since my neighbor's shells are blank, I will leave mine blank as well and cast my vote randomly better a chance at winning than a guarantee of failure. No, the people of the island are not fools. In time, the peaking light makes the star's pale blossoms into a mane of fire that paints the blue back onto the sea and sky and melts the dew from the skin. Morning has come. Setting down their shells, the islanders gather once again on the beach where their boats seem strangely cold and alien in the slant of early morning. From somewhere down the beach, a sick sweet smell drifts from the warming mountain of rotting susurration flesh. The people do not mind it. Their minds are on the vote, and the tide is already rising. Each one grabs a stone or pebble or bit of wood and trudges back toward the tables without a word. After the shells are gathered and mixed, with each competitor's name marked secretly inside, they are laid out again, and the islanders carefully weigh their choice, 
stopping reverently before each identical shell, examining its contours and particular geometry before moving on to the next. One by one, they choose, and leave their bit of rock or wood on the table in front of the shell they hope is theirs. One by one, the lots are deposited, and slowly the piles accumulate, most shells with one vote, but some with two, three, or four, and many with none. Just as the sun's rays are slicing through the highest palm fronds, the votes are counted. This year, the winner received eight votes. Eight pebbles sit in a small pile before the perfectly red shell. For a moment, everyone is still. Each holds their breath, burning, willing that the name on the bottom of the shell be theirs, that they be the artist of this masterpiece. They gather around it, pushing and pulsing toward it magnetically, elbowing one another to get a better view of the phenomenal art. Some young ones duck between people's legs. Some murmur quietly, it's mine, I know it's mine. They all burn. The shell is flipped. The name is red. She is an older woman, bronzed and wrinkled, wearing a loose sarong around her salt-weary body. When they say her name, she yelps first, then grins then laughs and weeps all at once. The people around her turn toward her, wondering if she could really be the one. She gasps again and again, until someone from her tribe holds up her arm and shouts to the crowd, It is her! It is her! By now, the woman is shaking with joy, snot running from her nose and tears from her eyes as if she were a child again. The islanders around her lift her up on their shoulders so that everyone can see the great artist, champion of the island. There's a great cheer especially from those of her tribe, who feel, at least partly, that they share in her honor. Others cheer and grin, too, seeing her joy, which looks to them like the most supreme joy anyone has ever felt. They ignore the bitter taste that surges up to the back of their tongues and attribute the lightness in their stomachs to lack of food and sleep, reminding themselves that they tried their best and that the woman's shell really was quite extraordinary. They vow to try harder next year. Only a few weep, and those are polite enough to leave the crowd and find a place to compose themselves. The crowd moves as one now, as if prodded forward by the spears of the sun. They have a seeming momentum, moving first to the tables to gather all of the shells, including the winners, and then tumbling downhill back to the beach. Altogether, they throw the losing shells down onto the packed sand by the shoreline and stomp them into hundreds of jagged pieces, shouting and whooping. The shells bow under their feet as red as hearts, and then splinter with a great cracking noise. The winner, still held aloft, looks back rapturously at the millions of tiny fragments littering the beach as the crowd carries her back, back towards the center of the island, past the long tables and now-dead bonfires, into the jungle and towards the high peak of the towering mountain. By the time they have almost reached the cave at the top of the mountain, it is midday. The sun beats down on the crowd, drawing out any sweat that was not drawn out by the arduous climb. Some small children or older people have stayed at the foot of the mountain, unable to make the climb to the cave. The crowd is quiet now, focused on the work of moving the winner forever up, up towards the black hole ahead of them. They pass the mouth of the cave with a sigh, grateful to be on level ground and in the coolness of the cave's shadow. The first ones in stop, as every year, to wait for those behind them, to wait until the entire island has assembled in the big amphitheater of the cavern. While they wait, they peer reverently into the dark, 
at the statues. The statues are metal, but the dust of the cave has dulled their luster. They aren't arranged, other than that they all face the mouth of the cavern, as if to mirror the islanders waiting to enter. They are all silver in color, and there are hundreds of them. Though the darkness at the back of the cave hides most of them from sight, just those that stand close enough to the front to be viewed are impressive in their number. All types of people are represented. Children, old men, dark-skinned and light, crippled and virile. The statues are as various and eclectic as the island people themselves. One would think that the people depicted in the statues had nothing in common, but the growing crowd at the mouth of the cave know better. These are the winners, the champions of the island. Each statue is the perfect likeness of one of the island's many great artists and spiritual visionaries. At the base of each, the shell of the winner sits, covered with thick blankets of dust and web. Oh, they think, to be immortalized in this hall of wonders, this year's winner gazes at the statues in the dusky light and weeps again. She clutches her shell to her chest with both arms like a little girl hugging a doll. Her eyes become glassy with joy, and she bounces on top of her carrier's shoulders, wordlessly urging them forward. As one in their wonder and awe, the crowd swims through the cool of the cavern toward the back, where the throne waits. The throne is not a chair. The throne is a ring of stone columns, each the size of a man. They rise toward the invisible cave ceiling until they disappear into dusk. They've been worn smooth by thousands of years, by the millions of hands that have touched them, hoping for some feeling from the sacred and divine. The circle they encompass is ten feet in diameter, and the floor is bowl-shaped from eons of use. An ancient iron grating is set in the center, thickened with rust but strong as ever. This is the holiest of places, the blessed circle that may only be inhabited once each year by the winner of the festival. They slowly lower her from their shoulders and set her small feet on the floor of the cave. Weakly, the woman pads forward, still clutching her shell. As she approaches the circle of columns, she absently reaches out to someone nearby, handing them her shell, that glorious opus, to be placed with her statue when the time comes. She does not look at them, but fixes her eyes at the center of the ring. When she passes through the line of columns into where the ground begins to slope down toward the grate, she feels a sudden electricity, a rush of fulfillment, and she gasps. She almost collapses, but she steadies herself on one of the great stones. She sets one of her calloused feet onto the rough grating and hums at the cold, damp feeling. It is all just as she imagined it. She laughs again. It echoes in the cave, soaring over a silenced crowd. Grinning, she now moves to the very center of the grating and turns to face the crowd. The grating sinks slightly, as if she has pressed a button. Above, there is a rumble too large and too mighty to be anything but divine, quickly followed by the hiss of liquid slithering downward from the plumless dusk above her. In the seconds before the molten ore hits her, the woman wonders what position she ought to stand in. A few dignified poses flash through her mind in a rush. Why hadn't she thought of this before? In the end, she manages to raise one hand to her chin and purses her lips in an expression of deep thought. Then the liquid stone pours down onto her, melting her flesh and burning her hair and boiling her eyes in an instant, enveloping her in a fire that will vaporize her, 
leaving nothing but a her-shaped hole when the rock finally cools, and the others crack it open to pour in the molten silver that will become her statue. She screams, of course, as she dies, sings out a single note of her own death song before her throat is burnt to nothing. It is sad and plaintive, but it doesn't go like anything, because after all, it is only a scream. When high tide comes in, most of the people on the island are sleeping. The festival is over, and the warm afternoon seems an ideal time for a nap in the curve of a palm tree's back or on the clean white sheet of a hidden beach. No one, of course, sleeps on the big beach. The stink of the susurration meat is nearly overpowering, and shards of red shell still lie half-buried in the sand, ready to cut an unwary foot. There are a few, however, that linger at the beach, though not to sleep. Every year, it seems, there are some of them, but always fewer and fewer, mostly the old ones. They gather around the white pile, holding their noses. This year, there's even a young boy. The mass, almost ten feet high, still quivers, though if there is a breeze, it is too slight to be felt. A few items stick out of the pile, partially melted, but identifiable, a bit of kite string a child's doll, the taste of raspberries. The old folks seem to not know what to do with themselves as they watch the pile get washed back into the sea. The boy makes an exploratory poke with his finger, which comes away slimy. Keeping his nose pinched, he starts to gingerly dig through a few of the dead creature's remains, then stops, seeming embarrassed. Others just stare at the pile, transfixed by reasons they are not able to explain. Some make low muttering noises or rock back and forth in the sand. Those ones will stay with the pile, not knowing why, until it is entirely swallowed by the hungry waves. In an hour, the last of the pile is gone, and they wander back to their homes, never talking to one another, scarcely aware that the others even exist, choking on words they didn't know the tune to. They arrive at their villages as if from a daze, just in time for supper and sleep. If they complain of a mysterious melancholy, their families assure them that they are simply overtired and need to take care of themselves better. After a dreamless night, they usually forget the gleaming pile. And perhaps they forget, too, how each gray body seemed to slide into the water a little too easily, 
seemed to flick or twitch or glimmer in just such a way as to make you think there might be some life left in the Susurrations after all. And perhaps they'll even forget the queer thoughts they had, the unexplainable urge to dive into the pile and dig with all their might, to follow the white things into the soul blue sea, to help them, to help them find new glorious shells in the deep water. Dear Jane, Falling out between Jerry and Sasha could happen anywhere, not just on Campus Green. Brainstorm alternate settings. Something meaningful, not just a twist. In general, look for settings or action that illuminates relationship. See the screenplay as a medium that does this well. Carrie equals too sarcastic? Want to be likable, but must stay true to character. Also still needs to incite Jerry's big move. Nature as source of personal strength. Rivers, woods, mountains. What do they mean? To whom? How to incorporate? Switch lunch scene with park scene. Structure. Parallel narratives. Flashback. Main focus is love story. June 12th. Dear Jane. I've never kept a journal before. Or maybe these are letters. Anyway, they let me keep my notebook. Who are they? And it seems like I've got a lot of free time on my hands. I miss you. They haven't hurt me, so I'm hoping that they're treating you well. I don't know how long they've been on Earth or what they want with us. I haven't even seen any of them again since I was captured. I was coming down from the peak of Mount Taurus when they found me. It really was beautiful. The peak was all gray stones and scrub. You could see the Hudson headlands and trees like broccoli heads crawling up the mountainside across the water. I was smothered in clouds. I felt inspired, was scribbling notes for the book like crazy. You would have loved the silence, the look of the river below like a slow-moving snake. It was a hell of a climb in the humidity, but when it was all over, I wanted you there with me more than anything. I wish I could have teleported you up there just for a moment. You would have popped out of existence, leaving some rich gallery patron utterly lost, waiting for the end of one of your rehearsed anecdotes, and appeared up there on the mountainside, splattered in paint, wearing canvas coveralls. I should have taken my camera. Didn't think of it. I'm sorry I missed the opening, sweetheart. I should have been there. I did what so many people lament and assumed there would be more chances in the future. I'm sorry we fought. It doesn't mean anything. I hope you know that. I was just upset about the rejection letter. Maybe even envious, let's be honest. Here you are opening another big show filled with paintings that make no sense to me, and I can't get anyone to even read my manuscript. I shouldn't have taken that out on you, though. And I feel so stupid. Your paintings are beautiful. They aren't gimmicky or vacant or any of those things I shouldn't have said. They took me when I was about a quarter mile down from the peak beneath the clouds and the timberline. What's funny is I had considered going off trail, but decided against it. Did they find me because of that? 
Maybe they would have found me either way. I don't know. They look like underwater light, don't they? I got a good look at one. How to tell how many when they took me, and it made me remember the way I used to float face up at the bottom of my uncle's pool and stare at the sun refracted through the ripples on the surface. They move like that, too, but they have more colors. Purples, golds, green, almost aurora borealis-like, and changing, as if the frequency of their light were hooked to a radio dial that someone is constantly turning. Maybe that's just the visible spectrum parts of them. I don't even know why I call them them, like sentient creatures, except that they seem to be consciously controlling things. Maybe this is a universal phenomenon, or a religious thing, or an acid flashback. Maybe I'm dead. I don't feel dead. I was out, though, cold. This thing, this angel of light drifted down through the thick tree branches, just fell through the wood and leaves like rain through a sieve hovered there in the middle of the trail, and I felt this electricity in the air. Maybe you felt it, like when you know you're going to get a static shock the next time you touch metal. And I stopped, and I don't know why, but I reached out to it, like maybe it was a trick of the light, a mobile rainbow or something, and it sent a tendril of light out at me, snapped out, and knocked me out instantly. No pain, no dreams, just crumpled to the ground. Except I don't even remember crumpling. That's how fast it was like my brain just shut off like a light. But I don't feel dead. They brought me back to the city. I'm not sure where. I'm in a hotel room, but all the furniture has been taken out, so I'm not sure about much of anything. Just an empty box with an imprint on the carpet where the bed and dresser and nightstands used to be, and an empty bathroom without toilet paper or soap or shampoo or anything, and an empty closet. They even took the coat hangers, which must have been tough because it looks like they were the kind that are attached to the rod. The front door is a big metal fire door with the knob missing, and it's rigged shut from the outside somehow. I've rammed into it a dozen times, and all I've got to show for it is a bruise on my left shoulder. I'm a little worried about the bathroom situation, but I haven't had to go yet. The water runs. The lights work. The wallpaper is gray with tiny pastel flowers that you wouldn't even notice unless you had nothing else to look at. At least they left me my notebook. When I woke up, my backpack and walking stick were gone, but my notebook and pens were still in my vest pocket, in the zippered one. You always told me I was crazy for carrying around so many pens. Maybe somehow I knew something like this would happen. The pocket's tough to find, so I'm not sure if they missed it or just didn't care. It's hard to believe they missed it, after all the powers they seem to have. They've taken over the city, after all, or at least all of it that I can see from my window. The hotel faces an office building with mirrored walls, so I can make out a good portion of the street I'm on. Everything's deserted. It's eerie. There are no cars, no people, not even rats or insects or pigeons, as far as I can tell. The only signs of life I see are the distorted reflections of other people in the same building as me passing by their windows. I can't figure out why I'm the only one who looks. Everyone else is just a shadow, passing by as if by accident, en route to other business. I thought I heard someone moving around in the room above mine, and I yelled and jumped and hit the ceiling like a madman for about 15 minutes, but there was no response, and eventually the sound faded. So is that it? 
world domination, complete and instant. Maybe there are government troops with ray guns somewhere leading a ragtag team of survivors in resistance. But for some reason, I find that hard to envision. I wonder if they're going to feed me. I miss you. I'll write again tonight. June 12th, Dear Jane, The room I'm in is about 20 feet by 30 feet, not counting the closet or the bathroom area. The bathroom area is about 6 feet by 8 feet. The closet is 6 by 3. The window on the far wall is big, about 6 feet by 10 feet. Outside, in the shadowed street, I watch the workers going to and fro. They started in the afternoon, after the sun had set behind my building. They all have the same stupid, vacuous expression on their faces. It's hard to avoid an ant comparison, especially once I saw what they were doing, dragging anything and everything mechanical back down the street. Lampposts, pieces of cars, mailboxes, anything metal, it seems. Five or six of them, or as many as it takes, lumber over to it, yank it out of the ground, and go back around the corner of the block. Where the hell are they taking them? What for? I recognize the same people again and again. It's hard to see them from this high up, but there was a woman in a bright red cocktail dress, and she must have come back for pieces of this car's engine a dozen times. She just picked out whatever she could carry, hoses, clamps, I don't know, cars, but just small pieces, and she'd walk around the corner and come back in 15 minutes and take more, always wearing that ridiculous dress. They must have captured her or turned her when she was at a party. It makes the whole thing seem even more like a dream. There's about 20 of them down there at any one time, all moving at the same agonizingly steady pace. Zombie movies come to mind, but they don't keep their arms up and they don't moan, or at least I can't hear them if they do. The window's open now, so I think I would hear them. I yelled to them for a long time when I first saw them, but it's no use. They're workers, with a capital W. They don't even look up. I broke the window. It was rigged so I couldn't open it. There wasn't anything to break it with, so I had to use my arms. That was a bitch. It looks so easy in movies, but of course it's not. It took me about ten minutes of pounding, and by the time it happened, I was so shocked I damn near fell through it. I cut my arms up pretty badly and I don't have much to wrap them in other than strips of my shirt, but I'm happy to have a breeze and some sound. The silence in the room was starting to get a little too much like my mental image of purgatory. Why so many afterlife references? I guess part of me is still hoping this is going to turn out to be a dream or a bad M. Night Shyamalan movie. I'm waiting for the moment when the movie ends and the lights come up, and I turn to you and ask you if you liked it. We both laugh and shuffle out of the theater to find our car and go for coffee and sit and talk about how contrived it all was. Every time I see a new worker down below, I pray that I won't recognize your face. I don't want to think of you like them. I can't imagine you wandering the city looking for scrap metal. I don't know what I'd do if I saw you. Probably jump. I'm sorry, Jane. I won't do anything stupid. They left me alone, at least for this long, so there's no reason to assume anything yet. I am going to do something, though, and soon. I'm getting too hungry to keep waiting around. I've been thinking about ways to get out, and if I do, I'm going to find you. I promise. I'm going to find you and we'll leave the city, whether you're lobotomized or brainwashed or whatever. I promise. I I'll take care of you. 
I've been thinking about when I got my first story published in that school journal. Remember? I carried my copy around in my backpack all day, and after calculus, we were cutting through the woods to go to the dining hall, and you asked me what I looked so damn happy about. I ended up reading it to you while we leaned against a poplar tree. I remember the way you looked against the mottled trunk, so slow and warm like a black cat sleeping in sunlight. You never seemed to move or even blink. You just stared through me and smiled. If you noticed my voice shaking, you didn't mention it. Instead, as you listened, I could see something incredible in your eyes. I realized that you weren't looking at me. You were looking into the words, into the story. You were watching everything I read play out in front of you. I could see my story in you, more vivid than I'd ever seen it, even in my own mind. That was the first time I knew your eyes had magic in them. What's wrong with them, anyway? Why do this to us, without any warning or contact? I wonder if they even know how much they're hurting. It all seems so casual. You know what I just realized? The top of the toilet, the heavy ceramic cap at the top is unsecured. I could have broken the window with it in one throw. June 13th. Dear Jane, I am the proud owner of two rooms. I use the top of the toilet tank to break through the drywall into the next room. The walls are very cheap here, it seems. The toilet cap broke halfway through, but I unscrewed a loose pipe from the back of the toilet, flooded the bathroom, but now I've got two, so who cares, to finish the job. There's about a five-foot diameter hole in the wall now, and the best part, the next room is completely furnished. There was even a hotel fridge with minibar stuff in it. Nuts, little bottles of alcohol, calories at least, I was starving. This all happened in the afternoon, after I decided to escape. I decided to escape because of what happened last night, which I should tell you about first. My love, this is more like a dream every second. Heartening, as I imagine it's only a matter of time now before I wake up next to you and realize it's morning and the clear light of summer slants between our blinds. I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to want to make love first thing, tired or not. I think that will be very nice after all this. Back to last night. They came again, I'm sure of it. The big they, they whom are in control. I was asleep, but I felt them in my head, in my dreams. I'm not sure what happened, what state I was in, but I was aware. It wasn't sleep, but not waking. I couldn't see anything except the inside of my own head, and they were in there, in all their multicolored splendor. And they told me things. Not with words, but they twanged and plucked my neurons like meaty guitar strings and showed me what they meant. It was as if I could see them waft through the cavity of my head, find an image or emotion or desire or dream and set it off. It exploded, and that became my only thought. It filled everything. If one of them accessed the taste of blueberry pancakes, it's like the whole world was made of blueberry pancakes and my mouth was stuffed full. They don't want pancakes, though. I'm still not sure what they want. They didn't seem benevolent or cruel or forceful or forgiving. They just seemed empty. Like something so different there's just no way for us to understand. Alien in the true sense. They are an absence. A gap in the spectrum of what we can know or experience. 
All night they sent me feelings and pictures I don't understand. All night they exploded my thoughts. When I woke up, the big smoke shapes their fireworks left behind were still clouding my mind, drifting out of sight as my own senses puffed at them like the constant breeze from the window. I was groggy and confused. It took a long time to really awake. That was last night, and this morning, a mystery. Today, more. I tried to escape like they do from prison, by tying bedsheets together and making a rope to climb down. I'm on the sixth floor, but my new room had a whole stack of linens in the closet, and in about an hour I had a strong rope that I could hang out the window and reached within ten feet of the ground. I tied the rope's end to the bed and tossed it out the window. I took a few minutes to try and prepare, calming myself, getting ready. I won't say I wasn't frightened. It's quite a climb when you're looking straight down at a sheer drop. But just when I was ready, I got this overwhelming feeling of despair. Whenever I even thought about climbing out, I'd get the feeling that I shouldn't do it. It was something more than fear. I felt that it would be wrong. I felt ashamed. More than I've ever felt in my life, I felt like if I climbed out that window, I'd be betraying everything that I valued. You, Lily, Mom, Dad that everyone would know what a bad person I was for doing something so terrible. My hands shook, and my stomach cramped up. I felt so awful about it. I started to cry, Jane, thinking about all the people that would hate me if I climbed out that window. I'm sure it was them. Something they're doing. Somehow they're still in my head, giving me feelings and images. Images of people's faces, frowning, twisted in disappointment and hatred. I remember all the times you ever hurt me with a glance or a word or a silence, and I relive them all whenever I think of trying to escape. It has to be them somehow, and I know it, but I can't do anything about it. I'm sitting here writing and writing, and I should be gone from here, but I can't. Even now, I feel like if I think about the window anymore, I'm going to be sick. Jane, I've been trying all day, and I can't do it. I'm not strong enough. If I tried to climb down this way, sobbing, shaking, I would fall. It's like something physical racking my body, like a dog's shock collar. I feel helpless. I keep thinking of when we first moved to the city and everyone seemed so strange and cruel. Everywhere I looked, it was a wave of people who were too busy, too cold, too downcast to care about me. Our shitty studio apartment with the giant roaches, nights being woken up by gunfire, times we couldn't afford dinner. I thought this place would eat us alive, Jane, but it didn't. I keep thinking about that. I need you now, Jane. Please be with me. I promise I'll find you and save you if you'll just be with me now. I don't feel like writing anymore. I tried to work on the book some, but couldn't see the point. They say that a real writer will write even if there's no chance of anyone ever reading their work. I'm going to try and sleep. June 14th. Dear Jane, they want me. They want me to be like the other ones down below. They want me to work for them. That's what they want. More dreams last night. More thoughts. Memories, foods, sex, feelings, colors, exploding and then gone. Once they explode, they're hard to describe in words. I tried to describe blueberry pancakes. That's all I came up with. Blueberry pancakes. Pancakes with blueberries. Sweet. 
round. It's hard to say, hard to connect these things. I had to read what I wrote yesterday. I couldn't read all of it. Some was fuzzy. Some words I had to read over and over. I can see them. I can taste them like I'm eating them. They are the whole world, but only when they want them to be. I can't describe them well otherwise. Like a drawer is labeled pancakes, but there's nothing there now. I lost the key. I think that's how they do that to them. The ants. I think they can't hear me because they can't hear the words. All their thoughts are exploded. I yelled at them and I threw pillows down there and an ashtray. The ashtray was metal and one of them took it and left with it. Bastard. I hate them, Jane. I don't want to be one. I don't want to be. Are you? In the morning there was food here. Old bread, cheese, brown, mushy bananas. But the furniture was gone from the other room. And the sheets, the rope. Now nothing's left. Not even toilet or sink. I pee out the window. I use wallpaper for toilet paper. But they left my notebook because I keep it in a vent for now. They didn't look there, I think. When I try to think of some things now, I get the sadness again. I get ashamed. I see horrible faces. I see you, Jane, so angry. When I'm asleep, they steal my words. They steal everything but the pictures that are too big to see. The feelings are so big I can't feel anything else. The wants are so strong, not fulfilling them is like torture. The tastes and smells are so coarse and brutal, smashed into my head. They fill everything and make me blind. All I can taste and see and feel is blueberries. Blueberries is the whole world. I can fight it in the day. But at night when they come, the rainbow people, they explode my mind and fill me up with nothing but their desires, their wishes. There is a little pile of metal things in the middle of the room, Jane. All the things I could find in the room. The screws from the light switch cover, the vent cover, the light fixture. I pulled them all out and piled them in the middle of the room because they made me want to do it. I didn't want to do it, but they wanted me to, and then I wanted to, and to not do it was like hell. It was like torture. So I did it. And now the pile is there. What does it mean? I am thinking of what to do. I will try and do something. I don't want to give them any more of me. June 14th. Dear Jane. Things to remember. 1. Jane. Soft brown skin. Yellow eyes. Like a cat. Loves me. 2. Jane and Lily. Christmas dinner in Georgia. When Robert called me a bum and Jane got mad and Lily just laughed. That night in guest room, making love for first time. 3. Move to New York. Jane makes beautiful paintings. Big, abstract. Shapes and colors that she says are her secrets. 4. Night Jane reads first draft of the book. She just smiles and smiles. 5. Night I propose with a bad painting of a ring. Jane laughs. 6. Jane's first New York show, The Bad Review, crying on my shoulder in the park, trying to feel sad because she is sad, but feeling happy just to be with her, to be the one she cries with. 7. I need to read this book every day and try hard to remember all the words in it. 8. 
I am putting an alphabet at the back of this book. I need to study it each day. 9. I need to remember as much as I can. 10. I need to get out. I need to help Jane. Getting a headache. Have to stop. What I am going to do. Not going to sleep tonight. Going to stay awake. Not going to dream again. Going to write more in the morning. June 15th. Dear Jane. I killed someone. This morning, two of the workers came here. I heard them at the door and then they busted in, two big ones, wearing normal clothes, looking normal except for those stupid empty faces, those heads full of exploded thoughts. The biggest one, fat, strong, greasy, stinking, he pushed me back into a corner, he held me against the wall. I kicked, but he didn't feel the pain. He held me against the wall like a press. He breathed heavy and his breath stank. I yelled at him, talk to me, talk to me, you have to help me. He had his mouth a little open and his eyes just stared and he held me there. The other one had a black machine. It was round and black, had cords hanging down. The big one was holding me so the other one could put the machine in my room. I don't know what it is. I thought it could be a bomb, could be a torture device, I didn't know, so I struggled and yelled because I didn't want it in here. I tried to talk to them. They moved so slow. That's the worst, how slow he took his time and set the machine up and moved parts around and bolted it to the floor and checked it here and there, so slow while I kept kicking at the big man who just didn't notice, who just stared while his shins started bleeding from where I kept kicking him. But he found my notebook, Jane. When I was struggling, he wasn't just staring because he noticed it in my jacket pocket. The lump, my notebook and pen. He came to life. Like they were inside him, like they told him to take it. He started reaching for it, slow, and my arm was free, so I hit him in the face, in the left eye. I felt his cheekbone and my knuckles hurt badly. He didn't stop reaching for it. I knew he was going to take my notebook, Jane, and I got scared. I need to read it, to keep writing, to keep my mind. I can't be like them, mindless, staring, mouth open, dead, dead, dead. I hit him again in the face, and he moved a little this time the sadness came, and I felt miserable that I was hurting this poor man, that I would be blamed forever and ever for hurting him. And I almost stopped, but I kept going because I was so scared of losing the notebook. I kept hitting him until finally he stopped pressing me against the wall and I could move a little. The other one was finished now with the machine and was leaving, opening the door. He didn't care about the big one, he was just doing his work and was leaving. I tried to run for the door, and the big one pulled me back by the shirt and hurled me down. I slammed on the ground and the door shut so again the room was sealed, but the big one stayed and bent down with his fat fingers to tear at my shirt for the notebook. I yelled and hit him in the face with both fists and his nose started to bleed, bleed dripping down on me and he didn't notice and kept grabbing. I rolled and pushed and bit to get out from under him. I got out and ran to the side of the room and he followed me, not running just walking so fucking slow and casual like a Sunday stroll with his shins and his face bleeding and his arm bleeding where I bit him. I strangled him to death. I used my jacket. I got behind him with my jacket and pulled it tight, tight around his neck. He didn't struggle much. He pulled at the jacket with his hands, but I held it there. He started making choking noises. I felt so sad, Jane. They made me feel so sad. I felt my little sister's wet hair under my hands as I forced her head under water. I heard my father begging for me to stop while I hit him again and again with a pipe. 
I felt like I was killing my whole family, like I was the biggest murderer, killing everyone I loved one at a time. I kept crying and crying and shouting, but I pulled the jacket tighter because I knew I needed the notebook no matter what. I knew it was all a trick. Even when I saw you, Jane, even when I saw that it was you I was choking, I kept holding the jacket and I felt your lightness and heard your last breath while I killed you. I choked you until you stopped pulling at the jacket and I let your body slowly down to the ground. And now you're here and they won't let me see the man again, the bigger man. Even though I know that's who I killed, no matter what, when I look at the body, they make me see you. It looks like you're lying dead in the room. What a mean trick, Jane. It's all just tricks. They're bastards to put this machine here, this black ball fastened to the floor that never moves and never does anything. I think it's just to torture me. So I know that any second it could blow up and kill me and I can't do anything. They torture us, why? So casual, so cold. They leave your image in my mind. They plaster it over that dead body in the corner. Make your face so big in my head that I can't see anything else. They're bastards to make me look at you like that. All I think is how much time we could have had. You always wanted to go out, but I had papers to grade. I had students who needed me. At night, I had to work on the book. I had to rewrite to get it published. I had to prove that I was good too, that I could be a good artist like you in your paintings. So fucking stupid. Could have been holding you in my arms all that time. How stupid can I be, Jane? Could have been making love or walking, talking, holding hands. Could have watched a movie. Could have done anything but sit and be jealous and great fucking papers. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Jane. Please don't be dead. Please don't die anymore. I'm going to find you somehow. Please don't look dead and empty when I find you. Please be Jane. Dear Jane, I don't know what day it is. I am sleeping for a long time. It is the machine. It hurts more. It is them, more of them, when I sleep everywhere. The machine makes them stronger in my dreams. They are bright orange and purple and red in my dreams. They want me to give up notebook, but I won't. When I don't, they make me hurt, they make me burn, they burn my thoughts to try and make forget. They make my memories so hot inside my head that I can't touch them without burning, but I touch them. I hold them and my hands blister and char in dreams. I need to remember. I need to hold on to words. They said in my dreams that they want me to leave the notebook. I know because the notebook is the hottest thing. It burns to even think about the notebook. It burns to write. It burns worst to read. It makes my teeth grind, makes my eyes water. I throw up. I claw myself. But I still read, Jane, to remember. I read even though I cannot read much, and a lot is nothing, just scribbles. I will never not write, Jane. I will never not read. That is the answer. They can make it hot, but they can never force me. I can keep reading, and I will always remember some. I will keep writing. I will read the alphabet. I write letters. I will write each day. They will have to kill me, Jane. I will not be an ant. They are down below. I watch them. They are done with the metal. Now they flow. They march. They all move in the same direction. Thousands of them all going one way. I do not know why. I do not care. I will find you. Things to remember. 1. Find Jane. 
two colors red purple orange blue yellow pink green three shapes square circle triangle torus four animals cat dog mouse cow crow house child lamb sheep wool five sex good feeling six lily mom and dad seven foods oranges blueberry pancakes eight read write alphabet fight dear jane i finding you but they taking i away in dark now many ants Yesterday morning, ants coming, opening door, many, many millions ants in hallway, they staring. They letting I out of hotel room, notebook burning, but I holding it tight, they not trying to taking it. They leading I down street, millions marching, all marching, I marching with. They leading us for long time, we marching through city, more ants joining marching, all marching we go. I seeing your paintings, Jane, I seeing gallery. I seeing painting through big window, I remembering you being there, you being at show. I holding burning book, I running, ants following I, I running into gallery, big, white, your gallery. I seeing all your paintings, Jane. I seeing the black one with pink circles. I seeing the small blue ones, the many small blue ones together. I seeing the rope, I seeing the tree, I seeing the man with the yellow ears. I seeing the gray shapes and the red dots. I seeing all the beautiful paintings, Jane. I seeing all the paintings. I going to opening. I seeing. I seeing your secrets. I seeing you whispering to me. I seeing all your secrets in the paintings. I never seeing before so beautiful. Very good, Jane. I loving. I remembering them all. No words but paintings. I remembering. But I know seeing Jane. I seeing ants. I seeing many ants. I holding notebook. I burning. I burning. I burning. I burning. Ants grabbing me. I fighting and hitting and slashing, crashing. I fighting Jane, but they many ants. They many, many. We marching again. Now, writing in dark in big room. Big machine. Looking like machine and hotel. Bigger much bigger, many ants waiting, not letting I leaving, looking for you here, hours, but not finding, trying to run out of crowd, ants keep coming in, feel crushed, so many ants, machine humming now, low sound, lights going off, ants silent, moving all together, big herd, crushing, hard to writing, rainbow people here, walking in air, walking above, watching, many, don't know what, scared, Miss you, Jane. Seeing your paintings, Jane. I seeing your opening. So beautiful, I crying, Jane. Machine sounding louder. Strange feeling, electricity. Something happening. Going to stopping. Writing again to telling you, Jane. I writing again soon. I promising, no matter what, I writing again. I loving you. Dear Jane. 
A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, S, T, V, W, Z. Cosmosis. Watch. I'm watching. If this is another one of your experimental pipe dreams, Richard, just watch, insisted Richard, clamping his hand down harder on Meredith's shoulder. Meredith sighed, refocused their gaze on the pile of loosely crumpled wads of typing paper that occupied the workbench across from them. As they watched, the strong smells of Richard's lab assailed their nostrils. Burnt wiring, acetone, and the unmistakable stench of egg salad all conflagrated to form a truly repulsive background radiation. Richard had always been a slob, in science and in life. His enthusiasm, however, was undeniable. Listen, the pump is starting up. Can you hear it? Maybe if you'd shut up for a minute, Meredith grumbled. This was the third time in a month that Richard had pulled them away from their own lab, their own research, and their own classes in order to stare at a pile of... Well, it varied. The first time, it had been some raw tungsten. The second, an old-fashioned radio. And now wadded up pieces of paper. And still, Richard refused to tell Meredith what he was up to. The humming Richard referred to was getting louder. They noticed it now. It fluctuated, low to high, like an oscilloscope fed through an audio array. The frequency of the bass sound speeded up. Meredith felt a slight charge in the air. The large laboratory reverberated with the noises, making it harder to concentrate. Here it comes. Richard rushed around to the other side of the workbench, sat on a stool, then got up again. His brows were knit in anticipation, his mouth frozen in a tight, sly grin. Whatever the hell he was working on, Meredith was honestly excited to see the results. Still, that wasn't going to keep them from giving their younger colleague a hard time. After all, the noises had happened before. Hear what comes, they said. It. Now shut up and watch, you old crow. Meredith chuckled and forced their eyes to stay open, forced themselves not to blink. The humming had taken on a very rapid, insistent tone and was getting louder all the time. Suddenly, it was joined by a faint whoosh sound, which repeated at an interval of about three seconds. That was new, they noted. Meredith's eyes felt like they were about to pop out of their head as they strained to keep a close watch on the pile of paper. They watched. The paper sat there. Then suddenly, the humming ceased, and at that exact moment, the paper no longer sat there. Had they blinked? No, they had not. They had seen the paper sitting there. Now it wasn't sitting there. Or, they theorized, it was no longer paper. It was now what appeared to be a small pile of irregularly shaped gray metal, about the size of the listening cup of a stethoscope. Did you see it? Richard was already rushing to a bank of monitors at one end of the room, where printers began to spew out pages of data, presumably detailing just what Meredith had witnessed. They heard the whoosh noise grow fainter and fainter before finally disappearing altogether. I think so, they mused. 
Meredith got up from the stool, walked the few feet to the workbench, and examined the lump of metal. It looked like lead. Is it lead? Exactly. Richard beamed from his place at the computers. Four grams of it. Four grams of lead from four grams of paper. The young scientist ripped the papers he was holding from the protesting grip of the still-working printer. Brushing aside his sandy hair, he bustled back to the workbench. His long white coat, worn purely out of vanity from Meredith's point of view, fluttered behind him like Superman's anemic cape. The whole effect annoyed the older doctor. Richard had become one of Meredith's closest friends over the past six years, but still, they had never been able to get over their distaste for the way Richard handled his research. He was sloppy and idealistic, constantly coming up with big new ideas and abandoning old projects the moment he lost interest in them. It was only his undifferentiated but obvious brilliance that kept him from losing university funding. Meredith was quite the opposite in their own work, meticulous, tidy, and relatively pedestrian. They got reliable, if predictable, results, published papers occasionally, and taught regularly. If they were entirely honest with themselves, Meredith would have had to admit that it was their own boring lifestyle and an envy for the younger scientist's seemingly limitless exuberance that made them so annoyed. So alchemy, is it? they asked snidely. Richard's only response was to hand over the still-warm printout. Is this going to turn to lead as well? Will you just hear me out for a moment? This is big. I mean revolutionary on a quantum level. I've been working some string theory experiments and... String theory is ephemera, Meredith argued. It's only resulted in one successful experimental application. Make that two, Richard countered. He tapped the paper in Meredith's hands excitedly. You said it, not me. Alchemy. That's what I've got here. It works, and it's real, and I can replicate it as many times as I want to. Hold on now. Meredith waved off his effervescence like someone shooing a fly. Pushing glasses back up the bridge of their nose, they went over the specific data on the readout Richard had given. The paper confirmed that the lump of metal that now sat on the table was indeed lead, and pure lead at that. Every molecule of that lump was a lead molecule, 4.00126043 grams of it to be exact. It also showed the mass of the paper that had been replaced by the lead. Again, 4.00126043 grams. All right, what are you up to? Meredith kept their own rising excitement in check. Richard had apparently chosen not to, as he took the opportunity to pace furiously around the workbench, every now and then eyeing the piece of lead with obvious affection. It's a two-part invention, really, he began, smiling so widely that Meredith wondered how the young man's head stayed together. First, there's the pump, Meredith asked. You said something about a pump. Exactly. Well, really, it's a quanta spin excitation machine, but I've been calling it a quantum pump. Richard stopped pacing and knocked on an open box of junky-looking electronics that slopped intestine-like on a small table in the corner. Two large cables ran from the machine up to the ceiling, where they met at another box that was bolted in place above the surface of the workbench, then continued on to the opposite wall, where they finally disappeared into the adjacent room. Was that the humming noise? The whoosh, actually. Richard corrected, and continued his pacing before the hem of his lab coat had a chance to catch up. 
The humming is the pump's sister device, a machine that I'm calling the string filter. Okay, so you've got a pump and a filter. What's it all mean? Alchemy. Or, to put it in more contemporary terms, matter translation. Richard stopped abruptly as he said it, raising his arms with the exaggerated pride of a man posing for a trophy. His smile had become even wider, if that was possible. Meredith took their glasses off and rubbed their eyes for some time. This was mainly in order to give them a chance to think. Just to be clear, you're suggesting that you have invented a repeatable, cost-efficient method of changing one form of matter into another? Precisely. I'm sorry I dragged you over here for the first trials, but I think you can see why I was so eager to share my theory. And what theory is that? You haven't told me one whit about how the process works. You've made lead. Can you make gold? Can you make, let's say, a tree? An automobile? Meredith felt questions tumbling out of them as they only seemed to in Richard's presence. Richard was waving off the inquiries as quickly as they came. Yes, no... Listen, I can only make pure substances right now. And anyway, he said, catching himself, I'm not making them. I'm just bringing them into our universe. I think I'd better sit down for this, said Meredith, collapsing back onto their stool. Well, it's quite simple, really. You just need a firm handle on entanglement. Richard went to a supply closet at one end of the room, opened it, and pulled out a small green chalkboard. Fishing around for a few seconds... He came up with some chalk as well. He returned to the workbench where Meredith sat in something of a daze and slapped the board down next to the lead lump. He motioned for Meredith to stand. It took some doing, but in a few seconds, Meredith was watching what amounted to a lecture being given by the younger scientist, complete with chalkboard diagrams and nearly illegible handwriting. Meredith was loath to admit it, but the lecture was likely a necessity. As a biologist, much of Rich's physics work was beyond them. They'd like to have thought that what they did would have been beyond Richard, but Richard was a special case. The possibility of multiple parallel dimensions has always been a contested implication of quantum M theory, Richard began, drawing two large circles on the board and labeling the left one Universe A and the right one Universe B. Which one are we? We're Universe A, with the pile of paper. He drew some scribbles in the left circle to approximate the shape of a pile. I thought to myself, Richard continued, that if this were indeed true, I could certainly think of a way to harness this knowledge for a useful purpose, right? I suppose so, answered Meredith, who rarely thought of their work as useful in any real sense. Richard wrote PB, the chemical symbol for lead, in the circle on the right. So here's the lead we want, and we can't get at it. Now, you see what I mean when I say we're not changing matter, but transferring it. Now, hold it right there. Meredith felt the adrenaline flooding their system. The tips of their fingers felt like an electric current was running through them. Are you telling me that this lead is, what, is from a parallel universe? An alternate dimension? Indeed, Richard grinned. Do you realize what you're suggesting? I do. Then you realize that unless you have proof, absolute proof, the rest of the scientific community is going to laugh you out of a job? Meredith was shaking now, sweat beaded on their forehead. I have the proof. This is real. This works. If you'd let me explain, I can show you how. 
Without waiting for a confirmation, Richard continued his lecture as if it had never been interrupted. Now, this first step in the process, as we've seen, is the pump. The pump, to put it simply, forces matter from Universe A to appear in Universe B. He drew an arrow from the pile of paper in Universe A to the circle indicating Universe B, then looked at Meredith with arched eyebrows. Got that? Not really. I mean, I see what you're saying, but how do you do it? What do you mean, appears? Quantum theory dictates that every piece of matter in the universe, rather than constantly existing and moving about as we perceive, is actually flashing in and out of existence at an amazingly high rate of frequency. Richard flipped over the chalkboard and began to draw another diagram. This one was of a bunch of dots floating on an empty field on the left half of the board. The particles have a certain probability of reappearing in a certain place. This probability is dictated by our observed laws of gravitation, momentum, and and the like. He erased the dots, then redrew them in a slightly different configuration. All my machine does is push the particles towards reappearing in a coordinate outside our own universe. He erased the dots again. This time, they reappeared on the right side of the board instead. Richard flipped the board back over, where universes A and B waited quietly to fulfill their roles. Meredith's head hurt badly. Okay, they bluffed. I've got it now, go on. Well, next comes the real discovery. I'm pretty proud of this. Meredith wondered fleetingly what discovery Richard could mean, considering the fact that he had already apparently proven the existence of alternate dimensions. Richard drew a wavy vertical line in between the two circles, which the arrow representing the paper molecules penetrated. He then drew a bunch of smaller arrows going from universe B up to the line, but not through it. One of the arrows, Meredith noted, came from the PB symbol. There is, I have found, a connection between the dimensions in the form of a material equilibrium. Say again? I mean that this wavy line here is like, well, like the membrane of a cell. Meredith felt reassured by Richard's mention of a familiar topic, but their face was still knit in concentration. All right, they ventured. So you're saying that all the parallel universes are in a state of equilibrium. When it comes to the amount of matter they contain, yes. Meredith was pleased to see Richard's own face screw up in thought for a moment before he continued. It's like the material in our universe disappears along with all the material in all the universes, and then all of the matter in all of the universes reappears, but not always in the right universe. This phenomenon is astoundingly unlikely, however, which is why I need the pump to force it. What happens then? Well, said Richard, his eyes lighting up once more, since the universes are connected and in equilibrium, meaning that their natural state is for all of them to contain the same amount of total matter, the forcing of the paper molecules into universe B makes universe B react by spewing an equal amount of matter back into our universe. He indicated the smaller arrows, which ran from universe B on the right up to the wavy barrier between the two. So why doesn't the matter go through? Here you have a bunch of stuff, including lead, coming from universe B, but not making it through the barrier. Richard waved his piece of chalk back and forth as he answered, as if to conduct Meredith's mind towards a complete understanding. That's the second part of my invention, the filter. See, 
every bit of matter in the universe also has something called a frequency. This is string theory, interjected Meredith, happy they could contribute to the explanation. Yes, Richard agreed. String theory tells us that every base subatomic particle is vibrating at a specific frequency. So what my filter does is create a vibration at the place where the matter was transferred. You mean here? Yes, in this case, my lab. The filter created a vibration along the barrier such that every kind of matter from universe B was blocked from entering, other than lead atoms at this point in space-time, that is. Hence, we get four grams of lead from four grams of paper. Richard used his finger to clear a small hole in the wavy line on the chalkboard, then extended the arrow emanating from the lead in universe B all the way into universe A. It's like the electron transport chain, Meredith said, finally feeling that they fully understood the concept. How so? In the human cell, most of its energy is derived from a process called the electron transport chain in the mitochondria. Meredith began pacing and felt themselves slip into teacher mode. Little agents called cytochromes essentially spit protons to one side of a semi-permeable membrane. The protons want to get back across in order to maintain electrical equilibrium, but they can't because of the membrane. The only way through is a tunnel in the membrane formed by ATP synthase, an enzyme. The protons go through the tunnel, and the potential energy created by the process is enough to provide ATP, which powers the cell. That's exactly right! Richard beamed. It just goes to show that when the universe comes up with a clever way of doing things, it tends to be duplicated in many systems. He looked questioningly at Meredith as if for an approval. Meredith gazed at their young friend for a moment in silence. With all explanations made and the initial rush of discovery fading, they felt the cynical parts of their brain come awake and begin to gnaw like small feral creatures. This was big. What were the implications? What was the future of this idea? Where would it lead? Doubts and questions crowded their mind, taking the place of the quickly evacuating glee of understanding. The cold of the sweat evaporating off of Meredith's skin left them feeling clammy. What do you think? Richard finally broached. Well, Meredith began, measuring their words very carefully. This is a major discovery, one of the biggest of several centuries, if I understand correctly. But you never answered my questions. Can you make a tree or a car? Not yet, Richard said, putting emphasis on the final yet. It took me months to isolate the frequency that would yield lead. I've mapped out some other elements, but the ability to bring over any kind of complex structure intact is years away at the least. Gold? Yes, actually. Meredith smiled in spite of themselves. So? Richard laughed again, a light chuckle in the back of his throat. I'm not doing this for the money, Mayor, you know that. Imagine how much good this technology can do. Unlimited resources, fuel, food, medicine. And one day we could even bring back endangered species, maybe even whole people. Meredith felt their stomach begin to turn. These big ideas sounded dangerous to them. They pushed the feeling off, not wanting to bring Richard's excitement down. I think the prize money will be plenty, don't you? Meredith laughed, but their mind kept filling with questions about the invention. Richard was too idealistic, the little creatures shouted. He hadn't thought things through. Something is wrong. 
Meredith fought the shrieking back and scolded themselves for being envious of a friend. When are you publishing? They kept the conversation going by rote, still trying to wrestle down their relentless doubts. Soon, today, tomorrow, I just wanted you to have a first look at it. Meredith's brain wouldn't quit. Something was wrong. Something didn't make sense, hadn't been worked out properly. They glanced at the chalkboard. Universes A and B stared back like big cartoon eyeballs. What was it? What was wrong? And then, in a flash, they knew. They turned the thought over again, making sure they understood. Found that they did. Meredith? The sudden shock must have shown on their face. Richard was looking at them, head cocked inquisitively. Something wrong? No, not really, they squirmed. It's just this old brain gets to worrying sometimes. What's it telling you now? Richard put his hand on Meredith's shoulder and looked them in the eyes searchingly. I wanted you to see this first because I respect your opinion. I don't want to be a killjoy, Meredith floundered. Please. Sighing, Meredith went to the workbench and erased the chalkboard with a coat sleeve. The little lump of lead ruminated suspiciously. Well, I'm not even sure that this is a valid concern, Meredith began, looking around for the chalk. After all, I'm no physicist. They grabbed the chalk out of Richard's hand, divided the board in half with a vertical line, and drew a stick figure on the left side. This is you, in your lab, in our universe, they said. I've lost weight. Ignoring the joke, Meredith continued, If you've really proven the existence of alternate dimensions, as you claim, you have to be prepared to bear out the full implications of that. Who's to say that there aren't other forms of intelligent life in these dimensions? Well, there almost certainly are, said Richard. That's what's so exciting. Meredith frowned at him, then drew another stick figure on the right side of the board. Listen to yourself, Richard, they groused. You're not thinking this through. You're so excited about your discovery, you haven't stopped to consider all of the consequences. A flash of anger came into Richard's voice. I'm not a child, Meredith. I've thought of nothing but the implications of this work for years. Do you want my opinion or not? Richard deflated like a toy balloon. I'm sorry. I guess I'm a little sensitive. Of course I want it. Please, go on. Meredith tried not to strain their voice or allow themselves to berate Richard too much as they continued. The feeling of anxiousness that grew in them as they spoke made it a difficult task. What do you suppose the state of these other universes is? What do you mean? I mean, what are they like? Do they obey the same physical laws as we do? Do they work on the same concept of time? Um, I hadn't thought about it, Richard blushed. Since the universes are connected, I think it's reasonable to assume that they follow at least compatible laws of motion. Most quantum physicists now believe that alternate dimensions may be very similar to our own, with another Earth, an alternate you, an alternate me, etc. That's what I was thinking. If so, don't you think it's a pretty easy jump to say that these other universes, universes you're stealing from, no less, it's more like a trade. Richard interrupted, not liking at all where the conversation was headed. Meredith was lecturing intently now, drawing various objects on both sides of the board and sending arrows flying back and forth like volleys of rockets aimed at Richard's thesis. Whatever it is, don't you think that someone, say, in Universe B, may have already made the same discovery you have? 
They drew a small replica of the pump machine on the right side of the board next to the stick figure. Who's to say they haven't had this technology for months or years? It wouldn't have to be Universe B either, but any universe adjacent to ours, if adjacency is indeed even a relevant concept in this context. They flipped the board over and quickly scribbled out a bunch of circles connected by a web of lines and labeled the circles from A to J. You don't really know what you're doing. You're just capitalizing on a trick you found. Meredith paused momentarily, expecting Richard to interrupt again. Not hearing an outburst, they went on without looking back. Isn't it reasonable to assume that somewhere, someone in one of these universes has already discovered your cosmic loophole? May already be capitalizing on it? Not everyone is as high-minded as you are, Richard. The fact that you've discovered this may very well imply that someone else out there has as well. May even be far ahead of you in their research. They drew another swarm of arrows, originating from various universes and all converging on Universe H, where they supposed their malevolent alchemist might be operating. Who's to say that this isn't already happening? Millions of things disappear all the time, and no one would know if they were going into another universe. And your experiments may very well be making our universe, or our planet, or, I don't know, our coordinate in space-time, a target. After all, you said you were opening a hole in the barriers between universes. What if our competitors in Universe H can track these disturbances? You're just letting them know that they have an enemy out there, and firing off a flare gun to boot. I don't know, Richard. Meredith trailed off, still watching Universe H, daring it to act. They were waiting for their colleague to answer, to tell them that they were worrying needlessly, that their conception of how the invention worked was flawed, childish. In the lengthening silence, they felt fear grow in them until they could no longer turn around. Keeping their vision glued to the chalkboard, they tried again to get a response. Richard? Nothing. Richard. Dr. Richard Wren, having been instantly and silently replaced by a computer monitor, a small bookshelf, and several bars of iron with the phrase, knock it off, engraved on them in big bold letters, did not answer. Cost of Living I'm lying in my bed, wide awake. I'm seven years old. A summer breeze pushes against the black square of open window and sends the white lace curtains drifting up and down. I'm staring at them, have been for hours. The thick quilt is bunched around my hands as I squeeze the top until my knuckles ache. If I don't keep doing that, I'll die. If I get out of the bed, I'll die. If I move too much, if I cry out, if I do anything, I'll die. I know this. I woke up in a start sure of it. I was gasping when I woke up. Now, my breathing is normal and shallow, but it still feels like I'm going to pass out from being so awake. My fingers and chest tingle. Mom and Dad are in their bedroom down the hall, but they won't come. I'm begging them to come in my head, but they don't. If I try to call for them. Besides, the last time this happened and I did get them, Dad just said I was being silly and Mom tucked me in again. Try to sleep, she said. Kissed my forehead with hot lips. That was when I realized that they couldn't help me. 
They can't do anything. We're all going to die. Even mom and dad and even me, no matter what I do. I can't cry, though. If I cry, I'll die. I can't stop crying. Hot tears race down my cheeks in wild patterns, evaporating into streaks of salt on my face. I'm breathing quickly and deeply, grimacing and screaming all at once. Push, John says, and it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Of course I'm pushing, goddammit, what does it look like I'm doing? I've got my feet in metal stirrups and I'm pushing and breathing and the doctor is waiting and smiling, and John, the smartest man I've ever known, is just standing there like a pillar of salt. He's wearing his white scrubs. He works at this very hospital, a floor down, and yet he can't do anything to help. He has to just stand there and watch his wife go through the worst pain she's ever endured. There's a strain of hair in my eyes, a long black one, plastered down with sweat, and it's bugging the shit out of me. Push. There's a pressure, like heaving or throwing up, but much stronger, involuntary, almost. I scream through it until it subsides. John grabs my hand and squeezes, and it does help a little, after all. I feel a big one coming, and the doctor says so. Oh, here comes a big one, he says. I don't know how he knows, and that pisses me off somehow, like he's causing them. But he's right. It is a big one. My butt lifts off the bed as I strain and lurch and push my feet into the metal stirrups. A noise comes out of me that I know I've never made before, ever, like moaning underwater. It's coming, John whispers. I can feel that too, and I can feel a flood of release that I hadn't felt before growing and spreading up into me. The baby is out. The pressure there is terrible, impossible, like I'm trying to pass a concert hall. Here we go, says the doctor. Now we're cooking. Keep pushing, Diana, you're nearly there. He peeks up at me over the mess of my groin and my deflating belly, and I try to kill him with a look. He grins. It's coming. John is squeezing my hand harder than I'm squeezing his. His wide, smiling eyes are fixed on the doctor's hands working, where I realize the baby's head must be. It's coming. He chants it like a mantra, laying it under the repeated track of my harsh breathing and aquatic noises. For a long time, I just push and look up at the pea-green ceiling, feeling John's hand on mine and the tidal force of release and the doctor working and the baby. For a long time. Then, when John's hand slips away, I look back down. The doctor's working, but differently now. He's put on one of those masks, I notice, and his brow is furrowed above the triangle of white paper. I don't hear any crying. What's wrong? John whispers so that I can't hear, but I can hear. Of course I can hear. There's not a sound in the universe except for John's strained whisper. All of the release that was in me sinks, pulls me down into the damp bed like lead weight. What? I say. What's going on? I'm crying already. I don't even know what it is yet, and I'm crying. Diana, just keep pushing now. Just keep doing what you're doing, Dr. Klein says. He turns to John, the white paper mask looking like a demon's grin. John, page the staff. General code blue. John snaps the compact pager off of his belt and strides to the corner of the room, muttering into it as he presses a button. It's pointless for him to try and hide it from me. The message is relayed over the PA system within seconds. 
Code blue, room 213. All available staff and obstetrics, please report, repeat. I'm still pushing, but there's nothing to push. There's no resistance or pressure, and I know before he does that the doctor is going to scoop my baby up and rush it over to that table over there, the one with the heat lamp and tools and clear plastic box, the one for emergencies only. He's see-through, like glass. That's the first thing I know of him when the doctor places him on the table. The warm lamplight burns through his miniature torso. Little glass fingers clench and unclench. He's not crying. He stares out at me and his mouth is slack, his grotesquely vain chest barely rising and falling as he sucks air for the first time into shuddering lungs. His eyes are filled with bright red blood, a horrible red that makes me look away from where the doctor is working on my new son. Only he's not working. He's not doing anything. There's nothing to do. And when the other doctors and nurses flood in moments later, they don't do anything either. They just look at each other that way that says, someone's going to have to tell her. And they wheel him out on the table, my new son. But it's only to get him out of my sight, not to help him. He's beyond help. He's an aberration. John stares after the wheeled table. Our son's first car ride holds my hand. They're going to run some tests, he says. He squeezes my hand so hard that it hurts and it says, I'm lying. I love you and I'm sorry, but I'm lying. Good, I say. All I want to do right now is sleep, but I don't know if I'll ever be able to sleep again. John squeezes my hand for many minutes until it goes numb and I feel nothing. I use a rubber spatula to ease John's scrambled eggs and cheese from the still-sizzling pan onto a baby blue ceramic plate. Also on the plate are four sausage links, two triangles of sourdough toast with orange marmalade on them, and eight perfectly equal orange slices. Using the spatula, I nudge the sausages until they're all lined up and push them in to butt up against the eggs. John likes his breakfast orderly. My nightgown trails after me, as I whisk the plate of food out of the kitchen and into the adjoining dining room. The big mahogany table dominates the small room, which used to be a den or solarium or something old-fashioned before we converted it. The table is made of big rough hunks of wood, varnished darkly and supporting two set places, one at either end, which puts them about five feet apart. I know that this is silly, sitting so far away from each other when there's only the two of us, but I enjoy the symmetry of it. I'd always liked the table, which John had inherited from his grandmother. It, to me, was a portent of the large family we were meant to have. Not for a while yet, of course, with the miscarriage, but eventually. John and the doctor hadn't called it a miscarriage, I remember. Complications. My transparent son had died due to complications. I set John's plate down, careful to make no noise. Since I returned from the hospital, everything I do seems to be more secretive, as if I'm trying to be as quiet as possible. I find that little noises irritate me, and I actively try to avoid making them. John hasn't talked about the baby yet, except to say that it would be looked into, that he had every confidence that the hospital staff would figure out what had gone wrong, how to prevent such a thing in the future. 
John's footsteps make little annoying click noises in the hallway before he appears at the threshold of the dining room. He's in his ash-gray suit, the one with wide lapels and a navy blue tie. He sets his briefcase down as he crosses to me, touching me lightly at the elbow. We stand for a while, saying nothing, by his congealing eggs. Morning, he breathes, tender but determined, a practiced voice that I imagine he uses all the time with patients who have undergone complications. I try not to be angry with him. John doesn't deserve that. So I just look at his breakfast, surrounded by plate and silverware and wood, an altered sacrifice to the man who saved my life. I'm going to take all of my maternity leave, I say, or some of it, at least. I hope that won't cause you any problems. John pulls me into him and envelops me with strong arms. No problem, he says. Jill can help cover your shifts like we'd planned. It's no problem at all. I notice as John hugs me harder that most of our physical involvement tends to revolve around him squeezing some part of my body. For a moment I panic, like I'm a pig being crushed to death by a boa constrictor in the Amazon. Then I just relax, letting John's boa constrictor arms do their work. He lets go and holds me by the shoulders at a distance the way you'd talk to a child. How are you? Really? I smile, just a smear of pig meat getting devoured by a jungle snake. I'll live, I say. Your breakfast is getting cold. I don't eat while John does. I'll have some fruit later, I tell him, not sure whether I'm lying. He shovels his food. I noticed it on our first date. Even then, he had been in medical school, a brilliant mind and natural leader. A strong man, too, handsome and sensitive enough to make him irresistible to many women. But he shoveled his food, and I almost broke up with him for it. I thought about it, I mean. I never told him. Great eggs, sweetheart, he says between mouthfuls. You didn't have to make this. I always make you breakfast, I say. I know, but I like making you breakfast. Which is true, I do. John chomps onto a sausage link. Meeting today? I ask. He only wears that suit for meetings with the board. Mmm, he says, some grease dribbling down his chin. Big one. Talking to some guys, some kooks who are trying to catch us with our pants down. Some kooks. Why are you talking to them? It's their right. They get to tour the offices and equipment. Waste of time, though. Won't get three patients in today. John enjoys his work. He wipes his chin and leans back in his chair with a piece of toast. Well, what's going to happen? I ask. I'm glad to be talking about something new. Why didn't you tell me about this? Well, you had so much on your plate already. John just holds the toast, poised, marmalade gleaming. He sees the flicker of anger in me, the edge in my voice that means I might be in the mood for a protracted argument. I see that he's going to avoid the confrontation, probably even before he knows he is. He's like a deer. All men are in some ways. You should have told me, I smile. I like to hear about these things. I'm careful not to be angry, just to talk. Sorry. I work there too, you know. I know. Sorry. He crunches into the toast. Crisis averted. In a very real way, I'm disappointed. We haven't fought in ages. All of our conversations are pleasant and cordial, as if the relationship we have at the hospital has somehow clung to us and followed us home. He's a doctor and I'm a nurse, one of many, in his office and now at home too. Neither of us say anything as he finishes his breakfast and wipes the crumbs away with a napkin. The silence is long and unbearably comfortable. 
I could be naked. It wouldn't make a difference. Stop thinking like that, I tell myself. You're being negative because of the baby. You're looking for reasons to be negative, I think. And then immediately, why the hell shouldn't I be negative? I've lost a child. In the age of life, in the age of medicine, I have lost a child. John's chair rubs and squeals on the floor as he scoots it back and stands. I rise with him, silently. He crosses to me again, hugs me again. He loves me, he says. Do something nice today, he murmurs. Don't just stay in, okay? I nod my head into his chest. His breath stirs my hair. Are you coming in tomorrow for your session? I nod again. I'd never miss a Telrez session, no matter what. Okay, he lets me go and snatches up his briefcase. Okay, he says again. I've got to go meet some nutballs. Don't want to be late. He does a silly smile, embarrassing himself for me, making himself harmless. He wants me to smile too, but just this once I can't. He drops the face. I'll see you tonight, sweetheart. He goes out, and I take his plate to the sink to soap it up before the sausage grease can harden. I'm in the Amazon rainforest, hoping to see a boa constrictor. No luck so far. The maglev tour tram I'm riding in trundles through bunches of giant leafy canopies and is subsumed in the sounds of the jungle. Green sounds, bird sounds, sounds of violent life. Monkeys screech when we hover too close to a particular gray trunk tree or patch of black loamy ground. We rise and fall slowly, meandering through the jungle while the tour guide's voice politely points out things of interest. The tram is not enclosed, but open on the top and sides like a levitating ferry, and the humidity is stifling. There are only a handful of other passengers on the tour, scattered about in white plastic seats or leaning over the railings to take pictures or point out a particular jungle oddity. There are giant purple flowers bigger than dinner plates growing out of the side of an ancient tree. There's the piercing underwater light that filters down through the dense tangle of leaves 50 yards above us. But there are no snakes. I don't know why, but I want to see one very badly. I can taste the want in my mouth, a little coppery puddle sliding around at the back of my tongue. If I can see a snake, I think, that will be quite a thing. That would be something to tell John about, something to think about that isn't see-through and doesn't have eyes filled with blood. It's been nearly an hour. The tour goes on for another 40 minutes, and then it's back on the passenger skimship that will take me home again. I'm starting to think boa constrictors aren't native to the Amazon at all, that I've made some sort of ecological error. By the end of the tour, the part where we rise up over the glittering Amazon River itself, I'm one of only three people who are still seated. The undulating river below us is apparently the only snake we're going to see and I'm content to wait for the tram to take us back to our skimship station. The other two seated passengers are a row in front of me, a couple of middle-aged women wearing big white straw sun hats and necklaces of wooden beads that I recognize from the Amazon Maglev Tours gift shop. They're engrossed in a conversation that they've been having for some time, don't even notice the tour guide's lovely prosaic description of the Amazon's infinite majesty. I don't start eavesdropping until I hear one of them say the words, infant mortality. Then, I lean forward in my seat, 
wanting to have misheard, but wanting also to know that someone else was going through what I was. Shame. Oh, my dear. Do they know what's causing it? I don't know. I've only just heard about it this morning. Some sort of epidemic, they say. It's spreading, they say. Really, really. I haven't heard much more about it, but I'm starting to worry about Tandy. She's pregnant, you know. We've sent her in for tests. The women continue to gab, and I listen, an unknown third member of their clique. Together, we wait for the tram to jolt to a stop on the hot cement of the skimship platform. I walk to the ship in a daze, careful to sit close to the women so I can hear everything, all that they know. I need to be home now, need to be watching the news. I feel like I've failed in missing this information, in missing something I should have known about my son. As the ship lifts off to take me back to New York, I glance down at the Amazon River and imagine it wrapped around the world, squeezing. John is home too, watching the news when I arrive. He's canceled his appointments, he says. He wanted to be here for me when I found out. What I find out is on every channel. It's the new plague, the black canker on the body of the medical era. There's footage of them, all like ours, all transparent and veined and blood-blinded. Ours must have been one of the first, John says. He has an arm wrapped around my shoulders. We're sitting on the white leather couch and I have my legs pulled up into my chest. Maybe the very first. Ours. I think about the names we had argued over. We had never chosen, and then it had become a moot point. I want to have a name to call him by, my glass child, but there is nothing. I shake suddenly, tremors rushing through me. John squeezes tighter. They're everywhere. Someone on the news thinks it's a virus, someone else an environmental mutagen. But what could mothers in Ecuador and France and Siberia all have in common? Why is it the same, everywhere the same? Within the span of a day... Infant death has become the rule, and healthy birth the exception. Even so, I feel more alone than ever. John and I watch the news all afternoon and into the night when he gets up and makes us some dinner. I stay on the couch and watch mothers from other countries wail and sob in foreign languages and unintelligible moans. They grieve in Spanish and Dutch and Chinese, but I understand them all. John comes back with turkey sandwiches on square plates. Do you want to turn it off? He asks. No. I'm shivering again. I feel like a little girl. There's death, spreading, finding a way in the age of immortality to strike us where we're most vulnerable. Okay. He takes a bite of his sandwich. You should eat, though, he says. I used honey mustard like you like. There's a riot later at the Palace of Westminster at Parliament in England. People throw flaming debris at the building as if it is the beast that is taking their children. I understand. You need that sometimes when there's no one to blame. John doesn't seem to, though. What's it going to accomplish, he says. Believe me, everyone's going to be working on this as hard as they can. It will get solved. Violence isn't going to help anything. You think so, I asked. Everyone's going to be working on this. All the best minds. They'll figure it out. I hope so. Eat your sandwich, he says, nudging the plate toward me. I slaved over it just for you. I take a sullen bite and swallow. It's sweet and rough. John sighs and watches the TV, the orange glow of bonfires bathing his face. 
I'm at the hospital for my Telres session, my Telomeric Restoration Therapy, my TRT. The waiting room is softly white and familiar. Child-friendly furniture huddles in one corner around a toy made of shaped wires and wooden beads. I'm in a blue plush chair, and others identical to it are set around the outside of the small antechamber, all facing the center where a squat glass table boasts neatly stacked issues of time, people, and highlights for children. Joanne is on desk today, her area separated from this room by a counter and window built into one wall, and her loosely drawn-up bun bounces as she scribbles down the names of people coming in. There are others, but no one talks to me. The television mounted in one corner of the ceiling is on, but muted, and I don't look at it. There are no children. Diana, John's ready for you, Joanne says. I smile at her, rise, and hurry into the back. I find John in the hallway, waiting to intercept me, with his white doctor's coat and beige folder. My name is printed on the folder, Diana Damick, and John opens it with one hand even as he ushers me into the treatment room with the other. He guides me in, as always, with his hand on the small of my back. This time, for the first time, I wonder if he guides other patients that way. How are you holding up? He asks. Fine. I'm not watching. Has anything happened? Mmm, yes. Uh, some things. Sit. John pats the vinyl chair and I hop up onto it, lying back as he reclines it with a foot pedal. What? John holds my file open in one hand and scans it for a long time without answering. He gently massages my shoulder with the other hand. It's nothing, he says, finally. We'll beat it. What? Oh, it's these activists. And this religious group. It's all legal bullshit, but they've got it on the Senate floor, and but it won't pass. John switches on the radiation array machine and starts to calibrate it according to my chart. He swings the giant mechanical arm into place over me, and my reflection in the big glass eye of the lens is warped. Those guys you met with? The kooks? Uh-huh. Well, not them specifically, but like them. Christian idiots overreacting, stirring up trouble. No one listens, of course, but it's given these activists some leverage. They're pushing for a ban. While he talks, John busies himself across the room at a computer. He inserts the flash drive from the little baggy paperclip to my file, and my entire DNA structure begins to scroll past on the screen, too fast by far to be seen. The software does its work. What would that mean, I ask? Would they shut down the office? Like I said, it won't pass. There's a bill coming up before the Senate next month, but it won't pass. We're fine. We're fine. The computer screen prompts John to approve its findings, and he double-checks the genetic information from the scan against my scan from last month. But if it did, what would we do? It won't, he says, coming back to the chair with the flash drive and inserting it. You have to stay still, sweetheart. I realize now that I'm trembling and grip the purple armrests as hard as I can. John presses a button, and the parabolic lens waiting above me springs into action, its mechanical arm guiding it up and down my body like a cycloptic voyeur. There is no light, but I feel the selective radiation like a shower of soap bubbles hitting my skin wherever the eye goes. The particles it emits are binding to my DNA, lengthening my telomeres to match last month's recording, which matched the month before that, and before that, all the way back to 30 years ago when John gave me my first treatment as our wedding gift. I had feared death, 
and he took that fear away. He saved my life every month, promised me an existence that would not end until I wanted it to. It was the new miracle, the real fountain of youth, TRT, the anti-aging wonder that had sparked the medical revolution and the age of health, the process I had married into and which had finally given me peace. And now it might be over, might be banned. As the eye finishes its work and removes itself from my field of vision with a mechanical whirring noise, I start to shake again. I'm in bed, seven years old, and I can't move. If I move, I'll die. Sweetheart, says John, laying a hand on mine. You're all done. John is right, the bill doesn't pass. But there is no cure either. And the children continue to die with blood in their eyes. It's a month since my own baby died, and there is no cure, no understanding of the new plague other than the unsubstantiated theories of those seeking fame and the dire condemnations of those who, as someone always does, claim Armageddon. John and I are at home, on opposite ends of the couch. I have noticed this drift away from me, but done nothing. The symmetry is nice anyway. On television, analysts discuss the ramifications of the bill's failing, of course, Richard Deemer is mentioned, and his pocked cheeks and bad toupee are plastered onto the screen while he yells at a growing crowd of religious followers. TRT is the work of the sinful man. Burst blood vessels making his face flushed and ugly. And God has sent down his judgment upon us. A cheer goes up from the thousands gathered at the Washington reflecting pool. Richard Deemer silently dabs at his forehead with a handkerchief while the overdubbed voice of a commentator discusses the possible fallout from the series of mass rallies he's organized. Nut job, John says, changing the channel. He just makes these poor people feel worse, like it's their fault their children are making it. All that's on is more news, so John turns it off. The lights in the living room come up dimly in response, and John and I sit in the heavy silence. Diana. Yes? John doesn't look at me when he speaks. His words are smooth and his body limp. I'm so sorry. We haven't talked enough. I almost act like I don't know what he means. Then, yes we have. It's okay. No. I miss him. I need you to know that. I think about him every second. I know. Me too. I love you. I want to try again when... I want to have a baby with you, Diana. I know. I love you. John falls toward me and lays his head in my lap. I put a hand on his head, in his brown hair, and I just leave it there. Do you think it will? I ask. Do you think it will get better? Richard Deemer sways on stage in a polyester jacket. Man is not meant to be immortal, he says. Yes, I do. They're all working on it. The best minds. There are more riots every day, I say. We are stealing time from God, and in his wisdom he is reclaiming what we have stolen, says Richard Deemer. They take care of that, says John. There are police. They take care of that. Telrez must be destroyed, shouts Richard Deemer. God demands it. The crowd goes wild. 
We should make love, says John. You're so beautiful. We haven't since. I think I'm going to ask for a little more time off from work, I say. Would that be all right? We should make love, says John again, looking up at me. No, I whisper, not tonight. I stroke his hair with my hand. I'm tired. In the morning, John and I don't speak at all except for him telling me to go ahead and take as much time as I need and reminding me that I have another Telrez session in a few days. We both eat cereal in the living room and watch a cartoon. Then he goes and I watch the news. The bill failed, but all of the news anchors and analysts and commentators are still talking about it. PBS somehow managed to put together a documentary already. TRT, Cure or Curse. It's nothing but a lot of scientists talking about how really no one knows anything yet. All kinds of people in suits argue that some unknown vector in TRT is killing children, and other people in other suits throw out alternate hypotheses. A novel virus, a sudden mutation, the second coming. But most people seem to have agreed. Telrez is to blame. Without any direct link, without any evidence, but with nothing better to explain it, people unanimously fall on Telrez. Every so often, there's even the occasional shot of Richard Deemer and his followers. He's held rallies all over the country, and each one bigger and more desperate. The bill failed, but all of the news anchors and analysts and commentators are still talking about it. PBS somehow managed to put together a documentary already. TRT. Miracle or curse? I decide to go out only when I can't stand it anymore. When the news is all just the same and there is nothing more that can be said about the tragedy except to cry again, which in the end never helps. So I go out. The afternoon sky is huge and on fire. I think of snakes and giant purple flowers. I try to let the snake unwind, to breathe in without feeling constraint. I am blues and greens. Not all, but a little at least. I drive the car around the neighborhood, stop at the park to eat, and am on my way home when the crowd stops me. There are hundreds of people, of all ages, and they completely block the road. They carry signs on their bodies and fear and desperation on their faces. I could go around except that cars are backed up behind me, drivers and passengers getting out and abandoning their vehicles to join the throng. Then I see why. On a makeshift platform, Richard Deemer is preaching. A few police scatter the periphery but do nothing. A cloud of reporters jostle through the crowd with cameramen in tow, trying to catch snatches of the man's speech. This one is different. Deemer is proud, triumphant. A microphone picks up his voice and amplifies it. I roll down a window to listen. Today God's work will be done, Deemer says, arms outstretched, kerchief dangling from one hand despite the cool of the late afternoon. Today the Senate will know our will, and we shall be delivered from the new plague by the grace of God Almighty. The crowd cheers, and in real life it sounds nothing like on TV. Now it sounds loud and real and powerful, like an ocean, hard and unforgiving as only a mob can be. The government has ignored our pleas and ignored the will of God, says Deemer, waving his arms like he's hailing a distant rescue ship. And we must take up arms to defend the righteous from this plague of radiation. Deemer slams his fist into his leg with each word as he shouts, Go, purge the sin from this city. This is his finale, and he grins with all of his pearly teeth as the cheers of the mob envelop him. 
The people that were holding signs now hold sticks, bottles, pieces of metal. I look in the rearview mirror but see no way to get out of the traffic jam that's formed behind me. People honk and shout and start to disperse while police radio and make their way to the stage to Deemer. John is still at work. I'm 14 blocks away from the hospital, from his offices. If I wait until the crowd is thin enough to drive through, it will be night. I curse myself for leaving my cell phone on my bedside table. I haven't carried it in weeks. I haven't gone out in weeks. The crowd reaches my car and angry faces stream by the window. Men and women, mothers and fathers carry knives and bricks, some Bibles. One old man carries an ancient rifle. No one stops to look at me as I get out of the car and start to move toward the sidewalk. There are people going in every direction, some toward, some away from the stage. I hear glass smashing and know that whatever's going to happen has begun. I stop to slip off my uncomfortable shoes and run barefoot across the cooling asphalt. I can hardly breathe at first, my stomach tight and my side on fire, running as fast as I can past shouting men and women. After a while, I start to breathe regularly and deeply, the fire spreading to my throat and into my lungs. My feet are bleeding by the time I turn the corner toward the hospital. By the time I'm there, to the crowd that's surging into the double doors at the front, my feet are numb like bricks. I've dropped my shoes, I don't remember where. There is black smoke curling from the roof of the hospital. I can see fire in many of the windows. Suddenly, a hospital bed is hurled from one of the windows on the fourth floor and crashes to the ground, a twisted and useless hunk of metal. It is night now. I can't get into the front. There are dozens of people there. Most are just milling around, watching or else idly smashing anything that isn't smashed. The automatic doors are both bent so they can't open all the way. Instead, people have broken the glass out of them and climbed through there. I rush to the side of the hospital, the big metal door that says employees only. I punch in a code and open the door. Someone sees me and shouts to the others, but I slam the door and hear it relock before they can get to me. Once inside, I stop pressed up against the door. My heart pounds and my head aches. My feet, no longer numb, send shooting pains up my calves and into my knees. I'm in the loading dock. There is no one here, just stacks of crates and medical equipment. I don't see anyone as I cross to the service elevator, get out on the third floor and approach the door that opens into John's suite of offices. John's name is not on the directory outside the door. It's been ripped off. Some of the tiles in the hallway are smashed and lights shower sparks down where they've been broken open. Before I open the door, I can hear the shouting inside. Someone bursts into the room from the offices. He's carrying one of the light boxes they use to review x-rays. He looks at me, soot-faced, then pushes past me and out into the hallway. Now that he's opened the door to John's office, I can hear the crackling of a fire and more angry shouts. I cross to the door and hold it open, looking down the hall. There are five people, all bunched outside of the filing room at the end. They're shouting, and a large man at the front of the group is banging on the door. The treatment room on the left is filled with flames, dancing in the lens of the radiation array machine. Let us in, monster, the big man shouts. You can't stop us from burning this abomination. He slams his shoulder up against the door, but has trouble getting a good start because of the others crammed in around him. But the door is giving. I can see the wood around the hinges starting to splinter. My legs become weak as I try to take a step forward. I don't even know if John's in there. I should go. I should run away and go home, and John will be waiting there for me to cook dinner. 
The man takes another run at the door, and it begins to bow, the frame splitting apart. Another man in the group hefts a can of gasoline and unscrews the cap. We'll burn you if we have to, says the leader, backing up to kick at the locked door. I try to move, but can't. I see the desperate people ahead of me and the death they promise if I interfere, if they even hear me. I can't move or make a sound. I can't scream like I want to, can't run away or advance. I can't, but I have to. I can't move or I'll die, but I do. The heat in the treatment room is incredible. As I step into it, out of sight of the mob, flames are climbing the wooden cabinetry and melting plastic jars on the counter. The floor sears at the bottoms of my feet. I run to the door on the other side of the room, feeling my hair curl up and sweat boil off of my skin as soon as it forms. The door opens into another office, and I fall inside, laying only for a moment before the pain from the heat becomes bearable and I can struggle back to my feet. I'm in the nurse's break room. It is looted, broken, but empty. Another door takes me to the hall we share with Dr. Sprague, and from there I find the door I'm looking for, the record room's alternate entrance. I bang on it. John, John, it's me. It's only a moment before John opens the door. First, I don't even recognize him. His face is like I've never seen it. Sweat beads on his forehead and his eyes are wild. Then suddenly, I realize it's the first time I've ever seen John afraid. He hurtles toward me, his savior, arms outstretched as if grasping for a lifeline. His fear makes me feel strong, adrenaline coursing through me where I thought there was nothing left but pain. I even have to fight back a laugh. Behind him, I watch the main door to the records room splinter and explode, the big man spilling into the space. Diana, John gasps. Before he can say another word, I've grabbed him by the hand and we're sprinting down the hall. We're all the way to the hospital's rear fire escape before we realize we have not been followed. John is panting. They've burned the files. Everyone's files. It's okay, I say. Are all the nurses okay? Where's Joanne? Everyone ran out, says John, climbing out the window onto the metal escape. I stayed to protect the files. Stupid, I say. That was years of work. Impossible to replace. He helps me out onto the ledge, and the metal grating feels like razors on my scorched and lacerated feet. Just take me home, I say. Let's just go home. The power is out, and it's pitch black except for a single candle John dug out of a box in the garage. We can't watch the news, and we can't turn on the lights, and it's night. We're on the white couch. John is bandaging my feet. You're incredible, he says. Thank you. You saved my life. Oh, it was nothing, I say. I'm focusing on breathing regularly. I'm focusing on being alive. John finishes and sits down next to me. I can only see him as a soft yellow ghost, but I hear his voice fill the room like my husband. I have something for you, he says. What? I ask. I hear John fumble with his coat. Give me your hand. He pushes something small, cold, and rectangular into it. I clutch it instinctively like a security blanket. I'm suddenly very glad of the dark. I don't want John to see me crying. It's your flash drive, he says. Diana Damick. When this is all over, you'll still have your files. You can go to another clinic and you can still get treatments. I don't say anything for so long. John reaches out to make sure I'm still there. Thank you, I say. But I don't think I should keep it. What? John chuckles. 
course you should. I saved it for you. I think we should get rid of it. This is much harder than the mob or the fire. This is much worse, hurts more. This is my baby dying in front of me again. This is watching myself die. And so I don't really know what to say, or why I say. I want to destroy it, but I saved it. I didn't even have time to get mine, I just got yours. Please, I lay a hand on John's forearm. No, says John. We're not going to be afraid of these zealots. It's not that. The couch squeaks as John shifts his weight and leans out of the spare ring of light. His voice seems harsher for the fact that I can't see him. Don't tell me you believe this Armageddon bullshit, Diana. These people are rioters. The new plague is going to be cured. Don't give this up thinking it's going to save our children, because it's not. Telrez must be destroyed, shouts Richard Deemer. God demands it. It's not that, I say. A long silence. I'll do what you want to do, says John coldly. It feels good to be in a fight again. Then destroy it, I say. John grunts as he gets up, snatches it out of my hand, drops it to the floor, and steps on it. Little green plastic shards and metal divots gleam in the candlelight. I hope we don't regret that, John says, flopping back down onto the couch. My eyes snap open. I am wide awake. For a moment, I don't even know how old I am. I don't know anything. Then I do know. I know that I had a baby, that it died staring at me through blood. I know I've been through fire and glass, been cut and bruised. I know more than I know anything else that I am going to die. That John can't help me. That he can't do anything. That he is going to die too, and so am I, and so is Richard Deemer and everyone in his mob. My heart throws itself against my chest, and I can't breathe except by hyperventilating. If I get out of the bed, I'll die. If I move too much, if I cry out, if I do anything, I'll die. I know this. Sweetheart, John says, his speech slurred by grogginess. What's wrong? I feel the warmth of his body push against me. The millions of tiny hairs on his chest and legs brush against my cold skin. What's the matter? He must have heard me breathing. I'm embarrassed and still frightened. John lays a hand on my stomach and I can feel his breath against my ear. What's wrong, Diana? And for a moment, he is like a boa constrictor, wrapped around me, hissing. But then it fades and he is John and I am Diana again. I breathe deep. I was scared, I say. I got scared. Don't be scared, he says and his voice is like a candle flame that wards off the dark. It's simple and stupid and ridiculous, but it helps. It helps. Okay, I say. I won't be. Good, says John. Anything else wrong? Nothing, I say. Breathing deeply, letting my heart slow. I roll over on top of him. And soon we're making love, with a passion only the mortal and doomed can have. And he is careful of my feet.
Serenity Prayer This story concerns a thinking animal very much like you, from a long line of thinking animals very much like you. Where he came from, the earth, a whole lot of things happened that didn't concern him, or even his forebears, for a very long time. But one day, there started to be animals like him on the earth, and they started thinking a bit, and they got it into their heads that they ought to be doing something. So they started a lot of construction projects, and a fair number of destruction projects as well. They were like a whole lot of ants, and they stayed pretty much that way for what, on the cosmic scale, is a very short time indeed. Then one day, sometime later, which, as I say, on the cosmic scale is almost the very next day, or even the next moment, this whole mass of thinking animals invented rocketry and attendant industries and technologies such as the O-ring and the A-bomb and other things, and left the Earth to sort of see what was around out there. And boy, did they ever see. It took a while, but eventually the ants from Earth, who called themselves humans, bumped into a lot of other thinking animals very much like themselves in key respects, and shockingly different in others. There were a lot of wars and treaties and things, but eventually, everyone in the universe pretty much knew everyone else, or were at least cordial with the creatures in their own galactic backyards. You can imagine that took a lot of doing, and a fair bit of time, and it did. You can imagine that made for a whole lot of thinking animals, census-wise, and a whole lot of lives, all dependent on one another. And it did, for a short time, if we're speaking on the cosmic scale. On the cosmic scale, you could say it was late afternoon on the day humans first grasped the concept of I, that the thing happened. The thing is all you need to say these days, because it's just the thing. There are no other things since that thing, and it was a real there-goes-the-neighborhood sort of thing if you know what I mean. Bad stuff, from a thinking animal's point of view. It's now commonly believed that the Thing was an unfortunate collision between this universe and a parallel antimatter universe that was thrown off its time-space axis and became briefly, but tragically, quantum entangled with most of the matter particles in our own. No one knows for sure, though. A lot of the thinking animals that survived wonder how the other universe fared. Some pray to Ray Bradbury for guidance and protection, she being worshipped as a five-faced goddess now in many places. Arriving at a scientific conclusion isn't likely, because so much of the fantastic technology all of the thinking animals had made together had been smashed to tiny bits by the thing, and so had most of the thinking animals who knew how to fix them, and even most of their notes. It also smashed or otherwise led to the destruction of most of the planets and stars and stuff like that, Earth included. And that was mostly it for the universe, although not for the individual lives of the few survivors. Those limped along at the regular pace, which proved difficult for many of them. It might have been nice if the show wrapped up all at once, but time has bad timing sometimes. The animal that our story concerns is a human, and by virtue of that fact, very much like you to an almost impossible degree. He has a penis, but he easily could not have. He has a bunch of ideas and opinions that could have been the opposite without many changes made to the grand scheme of things. He's employed in work that seemed conducive to his survival when he took it, and that kind of thinking guides most of the stuff he does most of the time. He's sad, but so are most thinking animals since the thing happened, so that's not so unusual. His DNA and yours, DNA are the plants the universe uses to make babies, 
are 99.5% identical. So, maybe this will interest you. Bert, which is his name, works in deep space. He lives on a ship called the Ninth Requiem, but during his shift, he floats around in a spacesuit and helps to collect, catalog, and identify all the tiny bits of technology and art and crap that's floating around now since the thing. The surviving animals of the universe decided that even though most of it was busted, it was probably a good idea to track down some of that crap in case it proved useful or edible. It was something to do. So, lots of them did it. On Bert's ship, there were 148 thinking animals who did the same thing, although none of the others were human. That's because diversity was such an asset on this sort of job. Without any way of knowing what the crew might chance upon in the next cloud of crap, fielding a crew from many different planets and species increases the odds that someone on the ship might know what the heck a particular piece of metal junk is, or does, or has printed on it, or what its value might be to a thinking animal in the situation they all now shared. Efficient ideas like this became vital after the thing, with so few resources left. Bert's ship is very efficient, and so... None of the 148 crew are of the same species, nor can most of them communicate with any other one unaided. Communication would have been difficult anyway, as about half of the thinking animals on Bert's ship communicate by disturbing sound waves in the air, and there isn't any. Air. Not in the ship proper. In Bert's spacesuit, which was specially designed for thinking animals of his species, the air is perfectly breathable. But with 148 different kinds of animals all of whom, if they even respirate, learned how to breathe in conditions particular to their planet of origin, and so might choke to death in a minute if they were huffing Bert's stuff, and vice versa, it's easier just to never take your suit off. So, Bert never takes his suit off. No one does. The suit handles Bert's various bodily functions in a clean and efficient manner, puts him into a deep sleep when he wants to sleep and rouses him when he wants to wake, and even translates multiple forms of communication so that he can effectively work with the rest of the crew when he needs to. The translation feature requires a monthly subscription fee, which gets docked against your earnings as a picker, so Bert keeps it off most of the time. You can also earn translation time by letting the suit play advertisements. He has it off now. Because Bert has his translator off, he's not sure what the globulus who calls itself Brip is trying to say, by swinging its third appendage in a circle and emitting a mottled purple glow. But he gets the gist. The gist is always the same at meetings like this, regardless of what exactly it is in the life of each thinking animal that has made them feel the need to come. Some lost family to destructive and repetitive patterns of behavior they couldn't seem to change on their own. Some altered their consciousnesses via exposure to a particular spectra of radiation found abundantly in space, and needed help to navigate the company's drug policy. Lots of them were sad about the thing, or wanted to talk about the thing, or never wanted anyone to ever bring up the thing ever again. Some just liked to hear themselves talk, or see themselves gesticulate, or smell themselves emit, whatever the case may be. To Bert, their problems all seemed very fresh and exotic. They bore vibrant crosses. He felt old and gray, and his problems felt like a pile of rags encased in cobwebs in the corner of a garage. And the garage was on Earth, and Earth blew up. Anyway, everyone's got problems. We're all in the same boat, so to speak. And although it usually feels good to reflect on that, today Bert feels sour, 
and not much like listening. An acquaintance of Bert's that looks like a tree had a baby with a brick of jello makes a series of supportive chittering noises by rubbing two branches together, and he knows the meeting is over. Bert doesn't stay to chat or catch up with anyone, even though others do, and he often does. He'd rather save the fee, and he feels like being alone. His suit chimes and flashes various notifications on the bubble of his visor, and he lets his eyes unfocus, lets it all become a neon wash, as his body takes him by reflex back to his berth. There's no gravity on the ship. Everyone likes their gravity different, and it's too expensive anyway. But Bert knows the route through the cramped, scaffolded corridors quite well. The planet that Bert was born on, Earth, had ceased to exist half a lifetime ago by his standards. It had had its own sort of rhythm, its own sort of style and swing to its orbit, as all bodies must, and this galactic waltz took Earth around its star once every 365 days, which were defined as the time it took for Earth to twirl itself once around on its axis, like a pirouette. No one else on this ship knew that, or would have cared if they did know. Bird usually liked to dwell on the similarities between himself and the other thinking, fearing, striving animals still knocking around the universe. But right now, it seemed important to him, very important, that 365 days made a year, and it pissed him off that no one else cared. No one else in this quadrant would even know what he was talking about if he said it. Oh, you know, Brip, 365 days make a year. Did you know that? The sticky orange glow of confusion would be sure to follow. Bert is alone in his berth. His suit is strapped into a little cocoon of netting, keeping him from floating around too much. That's all the berth really amounts to, aside from a backpack the size of a small cupboard which floats freely in the chamber. The outside has the texture of a beach ball. It's see-through, so you can see what's inside and grab it from the proper angle. The inside holds Bert's personal items. The backpack automatically fills in the negative space around them to keep them safe, so you can pretty much jam stuff into it or pull something out of it whenever you need to, unless it's full. Bert's is full. He won't be able to claim any more of his salvage as a keepsake until the ship stops at a station to resupply. The backpack lolls around the room, bouncing lazily off of one surface, then the other, as Bert watches it. Bert gets very sad and angry all of a sudden. It's hard to even know where the feelings are coming from. 365 days make a year, thinks Bert. Fuck it, thinks Bert. What's the point? Things like that. Bert's suit sends him a hot pink notification, letting him know it's time for him to eat something, if he so chooses. The suit offers an extendable mouthpiece and suggests he hook his intake hose to the food box on the wall of his room. He dismisses the suggestion and the notification, turns all notifications off. Bert jams one arm into the pack and takes out a piece of salvage, something he found out in space in a cloud of crap, a keepsake. It was something once very precious to many humans very much like him, now meaningless in the grand scheme of things. A hollow rock, essentially. Blown glass. A sculpture of sorts. It shines under the light, little raised bits picking out single pricks of pure photon and pinging them back at Bert like a jeweled crown. That's why he collects them, Bert tells himself. That's why the backpack is filled up with them. Find after find, cloud after cloud, seemingly of its own accord. It's full now, and each member of the collection is strikingly different from one another, but essentially the same his glass menagerie. Bert's collection is old-fashioned, 
These are truly antique things, forgotten things, like that play, like Earth, like Bert and Bert's problems. Antique problems, antique jewelry in a box. He turns the jeweled thing in his hand, swimming pool blue and faceted and beautiful, but it's just a hollow rock. That's what Bert is telling himself as he uses one of his disposable vac bags to pressurize the space around the hollow rock and translate its contents into the bag. Then he carefully stuffs the vac bag into the proper position in his food box adapter dongle and plugs the dongled bag into the food box port. Just then, the portal that separates Bert's little closet from 147 others suddenly hisses open. Bert jumps in his little cocoon, surprised and embarrassed. He immediately realizes there's no need for embarrassment. His friend, the gelatinous tree, finding Bert's suit unable to accept doorbell notifications, has gone ahead and opened the door to his berth, probably to talk to him about something. Although Bert loves this thinking animal, in his way, and they've communicated at length during their voyage or in free float out in a crap cloud, he resents the intrusion. Right now, Bert wants to be even more alone than floating in a cocoon in a tin can in deep space. Bert wants to be even more alone than that. What is it, Ernie? Bert calls his friend Ernie because that's a joke to him, based on human history and culture. The gelatin tree's real name isn't communicated by disturbing sound waves in the air, but through the emission of UV light, an ability Bert lacks. So he calls it Ernie. Ernie doesn't know about Bert and Ernie, or that 365 days make a year, or what's in the vac bag, or any of that, Bert reminds himself. Bert's embarrassment settles down a little, and he toggles on his translator. Can we keep it quick, though? I haven't gotten called up in a while, and my ad debt is getting pretty ridiculous. Ernie causes some symbols to rise on the gooey surface of his front face, and Bert recognizes one as the symbol for shift or unit of work in Ernie's people's language. Bert snaps the dongle off of his bag and tangles it up with part of the strapping on his cocoon so the loaded vac bag doesn't drift off. After a delay... Bert's suit translates Ernie's full thought for him. A soothing voice in his helmet says, Well then, it's your lucky day, asshole. The fucking computers picked up human goddamn writing on a lot of objects in this cocksucking crap cloud we're working. It's a triple-decker shitstorm, and you're the fuckface on top. Bert had set his suit up to translate like that, with lots of optional swearing thrown in. This was another joke to Bert. It was something to do. Bert toggles his translator back off. He doesn't want to run up his ad debt any more than he needs to, but a crap cloud with a rich vein of earth crap means he could be picking and sorting for several shifts to come. He could use the credit. Bert makes a sign with his hand that Ernie knows means, thank you so much, we are friends, but I don't want to use my translator right now. Then Ernie chitters back and schlorps out of Bert's room. Bert turns his visor display back on and immediately sees the work invite, answers it yes. The visor reminds him that he hasn't eaten in some time and that picking work or any deep space work can be dangerous on an empty stomach, disorientation and the like. Bert taps on his vac bag and watches the small bubble of empty air inside divide and struggle to find which way is up. The bag is filled with clear liquid. Bert's visor chimes. His invite has been accepted, unusually quickly, and his shift countdown timer has begun to spin. He'd only get prorated pay if he didn't hustle to the outhole and start picking. So he does. 
As the two small drones carry Bert from the outhole to his assigned patch of crap cloud, and this one was a real shitstorm, he observed, a class eight with plenty of diverse particulate, he can see dozens of other creatures like him picking through the debris in their suits. One of the workers, closely resembling an elephant-sized tardigrade, swims along suitless, partnered with the sentient gas being, as usual. The gas cloud travels with and around the tardigrade, whose name is Alice, giving her some matter against which to push, propelling the both of them. Show-offs. Those that do wear suits flash sporadically as they reflect floodlights from the ship. Their glass-like visors, variously shaped and as numerous as their ocular organs are, glow, in many cases, with a vid stream or ad stream if the worker is sloughing off some debt. Bert sighs and turns on his own ad stream. Semi-opaque overlays encouraging him to trade work hours for various amenities spring into life before his eyes. He can still work, but it's annoying. A little counter in the corner lets him know he's currently 64.5 Earth hours from earning back an ad-free work environment. Another little counter, a custom one Bert programmed himself, reads 364 days, 11 hours, and 48 minutes. Meaningless demarcations, thinks Bert. Nothing but time. One of Bert's drones detaches itself with an inaudible jolt and returns to the ship's outhole to await more workers. The second stays with Bert, who prefers a drone to working in a pair. It's not that he's antisocial, he just gets more done that way and saves on translation. The drone zooms around, scanning bits of crap and sometimes using laser pointers to bring things to Bert's attention. Bert does his best to ignore the ad stream and emptiness in his stomach, outside his suit, inside his skull. He catalogs a whole bunch of wrecked, burned stuff and city block-sized chunks of rock and some useless bits of what he's pretty sure was a Taiwanese satellite. He sinks into his own rhythm, the swing and pace of work unique to his body. Twelve minutes later, the drone lasers a circular shape, rotating in space. Twelve minutes being, in the grand scheme of things, on the cosmic scale, literally no time at all. Meaningless demarcation of meaningless time, in a unit so infinitesimal as to be non-existent. Bert would have missed the disc if the drone hadn't taken an interest. It glows dully red in the laser light. Amidst a veritable oort cloud of silhouetted debris, Bert has difficulty determining how large it is or how far away. All he can tell is that it's a circle, probably a disc because it ellipses out that way as it rotates. He tells the drone to grab it and bring it over. Things that were perfectly geometric were usually made by a thinking animal and could therefore be valuable. Circuitry, medicine, who knows what. It wasn't far away. It was small. It was a chip, like a poker chip. It even has earth writing printed on it. It even has Spanish printed on it, which was Bert's native language back when there had been a place for him to be native too. Language is another meaningless thing like that, thinks Bert. His hands shake as he turns on his shoulder torch. A bunch of scribbles that only mean anything because the thinking animals alive during that sliver of time agreed that this squiggle means that and that squiggle means this. Meaningless meaning. The beam illuminates the chip as its surface swings back into view once more, a waxing moon. Bert cries in his suit. All translation aside, here was some print, a set of symbols imbued with an ancient meaning by a dead race that Bert could read.
not have read to him by a computer or copy down to translate from Spanish to English to Japanese to Esperanto or intuit through trial and error. This was script in his language, the language spoken by his mother and father at home. All he needs to do is scan his eyes across its surface and he'll know everything he needed to know about the object. So he does. No one else on the ship could do that. Not with this object. It would be meaningless to them. Here, buried in the middle of the universe, was a secret code meant only for Bert. Bert's drone asks the standard catalog queries. Object description? Small circular object, human-made. About 10 centimeters across, maybe half a centimeter thick. Component materials? Petroleum-based plastic. That's about it. Homogenous. Technological capabilities? None. Artistic value? Minimal. Intended function or usage? Miscellaneous, I guess. Uh, tchotchke? Define tchotchke. A token. A keepsake. Like a trophy. Just a thing to remember something by. Estimated usefulness to the CPA and our efforts on a scale from 1 to 10? This was the cooperative of thinking animals. Everyone left in the universe, really. Minimally useful, says Bert. One out of ten. Discard or recover? Discard, says Bert. The drone's laser flicks away. It floats off to hunt for more worthy scrap. Bert's visor chimes. His timer has gone off. The other timer, the one he put there himself. The number 365 appears momentarily, then changes to read simply, one year. Which is the same thing it says on the chip, un año. Around the rim it says, unidad, servicio, recuperación. In the middle, in big friendly print, are the letters AA. Bert plucks the chip out of the sky, and it becomes his. That's all. That's the whole story. Fern Gully. Suddenly, the dapple sputtered, buckled, burst, and splattered crap across the blasted tundra, evil spackle that the luckless permafrost must guzzle under, guttered, grackles blackened by a mud as crude as shackles, acrid shadows splashed across the blasted tracks of activists. Cackling jackals scrabble on a sacred land, now dappled, speckled, dribbled, sprayed with spattered brackish spittle, spouting from the slackened mouth, the tip of that cracked funnel. Fountain pen in macro, spilling ink in a wide puddle on the lovely paper whiteness of the snow, spelling out the words they told us so.
excitotoxicity. Thoughts tumble aqua. The teacher said in science class, or was it history, that heads in the basket, Marie Antoinette, the guillotined few, stay awake for 11 seconds after. NMDA and chlorine echo, hypersaturated, each shaded droplet coupled, cathartic blue, rivulets and rivets, teardrops, solar flares, a reverberant slosh. Yes, there could have been so much more, and yet, AMPA excitotoxicity is a nice enough shroud to vignette tubular tragedy. Life's a wet hole we all slide down. The body is just blood and parts, and so is everything. I see that now. For 11 seconds, I crossed my arms over my chest before. I love to watch you slumber. Deeper saps pooling in your feet, bundled veins in fractal form from root to bow to twig to void, contracted with the cold. Pump slow sawdust blood toward your crown of frozen lightning jags, somnambulist halo, wavering thorn spikes, they test the wind gently and branch and branch like the delicate trace of alveoli on the lining in a living lung. You, partnerless thing, snore oxide and carbon at the flat fog backdrop sleeping leafless, dreaming in the nude of nitrates exchanged in the root cellar where deals are made when days are sunnier. I love to watch you slumber. Going a distance. In Little Blair Valley, you can mark a far spot with your eyes like a prize from a cragged mountaintop and dingledo down, warm as rain runoff, 
cracks in the ground form a storm drain for sun drops, never obstructing your view of the distance your leg muscles close, like lovers insistent on proving devotion with a low locomotion in this old army fort for the forces of ocean. The memory trace of moisture is baked in, into the rust and the dust and the salt of a snakeskin, into strange succulent cousins to kelp that drift with the wind currents, stump for themselves. And when where you are has turned far to near and changed day for night, you can see the stars clearly and tunnel from one to the other to here. Ashes of my uncle. Been drinking a lot lately. Not in the good way, but not in the worst way. Not yet. With the acid and the alcohol frying my dendrites, I fought with my baby. Hot set. At Burning Man sign-in, I rolled in some ashes. They welcomed me home. And I wept. Feels like I'm dressed in the ashes of my uncle. Took us boating in the summers, but sunset. Don't want to live forever. Don't want to die tomorrow. Can't afford to waste this muscle on side bets. So I'm eating all the ashes of my uncle, and I'm hoping that he'll welcome me someday. But not yet.